Now, Madam Speaker, I have to say, my girls told me, tell the Speaker how much we admire her. I mean, wow. good morning that there. That was so great. You think so? Yes, I think so. That was the former House Speaker. He's taking us back because he used to get emotional. Yeah, that, that was actually from yesterday. That wasn't a flashback yeah. to his <laughs> past. It might be confusing if you haven't had a cup of coffee yet. It actually was yesterday. Good morning. That's the former House Speaker, John Boehner, getting emotional during a tribute to Nancy Pelosi. More on that in just a moment. But this morning, we need to tell you about these tornadoes. They have torn through Louisiana, leaving behind major destruction. Multiple people are injured. An eight-year-old is dead. Mm. We're going to show you what happened on the ground. Also, we do have new details on... The man who attacked Paul Pelosi, who else investigators say he had on his hit list, plus this. And I realized that I wasn't just being thrown to the wolves, I was being fed to the wolves. That's Megan out with new insights on what happened behind the scenes in the royal family and what Harry says William did that, quote, terrified him. All of that in just a moment, but we're going to begin with a state of emergency in tornado-ravaged Louisiana. This morning, at least three people are dead, including a mother and her eight-year-old son. Their bodies ripped from their home and found in the streets more than half a mile away. Nearly 50 tornadoes have been reported across the South so far, 16 of them in Louisiana. This video you're looking at shows a tornado blowing through the city of Araby, kicking up debris and taking out power lines. And in Marrero, near New Orleans, a tornado slammed into this Winn-Dixie grocery store, completely ripping off the roof, leaving behind a path of destruction. At this hour, more than 50,000 people are without power, and a lot of folks are very shaken up. We got inside, and like five minutes later, all hell broke. It just sounded like it sounded like a bomb went off here. My brother, he runs in front of me, and then as we're running, we just hear a whole bunch of Boom, and then everything, like we hit a roof lifting and he's lifted off his feet and he grabbed onto the to the door frame. And as he was grabbing on, I'm falling off with that side of the trailer. Let's get to the ground now. Seeing as Nick Valencia live for CNN this morning in Gretna, Louisiana. Nick, good morning to you. Just how bad is it on the ground there? Yeah, good morning, Don. Just take a look at some of this damage left behind by a tornado that directly hit this community in Gretna, Louisiana. It's one of the many communities across the state hit by a large outbreak of tornadoes, which is rare for this time of year. So rare, in fact, that some of the residents that we spoke to say, well, they were aware that there was going to be some severe weather in the area, they never expected to take a direct hit. Yep, that's a tornado heading our way. Extreme weather wreaking havoc in Louisiana after more than a dozen tornadoes were reported across the region Wednesday. Kalana residents in St. Charles Parish witnessed a tornado tear through their neighborhood in a matter of seconds. It shook us and knocked us down, but then when I walked over, I seen all the damage on, on the street. And I just can't believe this happened like eight seconds. Eight seconds it took to do One woman described the moment the tornado hit her family's home. I just hear a whole bunch of booming against the wall and then as I'm running out, my brother, he runs in front of me. And then as we're running, we just hear a whole bunch of boom. And then everything, like we hear a roof lifting and he's lifted off his feet and he grabbed onto the to the door frame. Jefferson Parish was hard hit and left in the dark. In this path that we saw, there are a lot of power lines down. 
and that's not going to happen quickly, the restoration there. People want to help themselves. People are already um, in the dark trying to clean their houses, pull, pull stuff to the driveway. Um, it's it's a very sad that we're dealing with this in December um, when we thought we got through the hurricane season okay. A tornado touched down in the city of Gretna. I toured the homes destroyed in the immediate aftermath. The noise that it made, it was unreal. I was looking out the window at first and I, I just got out the window, you know, I mean, I, I was panicking that, you know, and I just started saying my prayers. I spoke to some of the neighborhood's youngest about the experience. I thought it was an explosion, and then my mama told me to get down. Another two tornadoes touched down in New Iberia, causing damage to a medical center and destroying many homes. We had mobile homes flipped, um, houses just completely destroyed, families all torn apart. It's going to take a while before people are going to be, or things going to be back to normal. New Iberia resident Lizzie Taylor says she will now have to move. That tornado that I thought we were safe from destroyed our house, destroyed our everything. Just to give you an extent, uh, a sense of the extent of the damage, this used to be a church. Uh, you know, the water is still pouring down. You can see the roof has been partially torn off and the side of the building here is just left in tatters. You know, a lot of this community looks like this block after block. There's a lot of homes in this area that we were in last night, still without power. More emergency crews are going to be canvassing the area, looking for making sure everyone is unaccounted, making sure everyone is accounted for. Uh, but uh, later today, we expect an update from Governor John Bell Edwards to give us, uh, you know, more information on the extent of the damage done. Uh, just horrific, Nick Valencia in Gretna, Louisiana. Thank you, Nick. The Democratic Party is still waiting on a formal announcement from President Biden about whether or not he's running for re-election. But it now appears that one of the most influential people in his life is all in. CNN has now learned that First Lady Jill Biden is supportive of her husband running for another term. This comes as a new CNN poll shows that 59 percent of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents say they'd actually like to see someone other than Biden at the top of the ticket. Ticket, But a majority of those voters say they'd vote for him in the general election if he won their party's primary. CNN's Kate Bennett has this reporting. She joins us now. Kate, what are you learning about how the First Lady has gone from maybe to actually supporting this run? Well, she's taken into account the last month or so of uh, Joe Biden's presidency. You know, we saw those midterm elections turn out a little bit better for the president. Uh, the economy is slightly better. Uh, even things like Brittany Griner, she's sort of the assessor of the situation. What you said is true about the first lady. There are two things, really. She's the most influential person, of course, in the president's life for 45 years of marriage. But she's also the person who can best assess him, uh, what he wants, how he's doing, his schedule, uh, what his legacy will be. And at this point, she's really gone to more of a firm all-in camp than she was previously, even this summer, uh, where she sort of remained on the fence and had a lot of thinking to do about it. It's coming off of a busy social season uh, for the First Lady. It's the kind of hosting stuff that is uh, not necessarily her top-of-mind thing that she likes to do as First Lady, but it's been busy, but she's still gotten to this place with the president where she is thinking 2024 is happening. Which is notable because it hasn't always been that sentiment. I mean, you've heard from the president and his aides who have said, you know, it's always his intention to run. But when it comes to her, you know, she hasn't always, as you reported, supported his desire to run for higher office in the past. So I guess a question here is until he makes a decision early next year, is there a chance that she could change her mind or does it seem pretty solid that this is where she thinks this is headed? 
It sounds from the people I talked to that this is pretty solid. This is where she's headed. The family needs to weigh in more firmly. We've heard this many, many times from the president and the first lady. Uh, that Joe Biden's future depends on what his children, his grandchildren feel. She's taking that all into account. She knows that, you know, Hunter Biden will likely be a target again. These are all things she's assessed. But I will say this about Joe Biden. If she doesn't want him to run again, she makes it known. That famous story about her in 2004 as uh, the, the Joe Biden and his aides, including Ron Klain at the time, were, were meeting inside their home in Wilmington. And Jill didn't want him to run. She was wearing a bikini out by the pool and she wrote the word no in all caps on her stomach. And she walked through the house um, just making it clear that uh, her voice needs to be heard. Won't be any different this time. But I will say this. Everyone uh, I've spoken to for this piece said that she's moving forward um, and they intend to get on board and, and make this reelection run. Yep. We'll see, see if it includes a similar message this time. Kate Bennett, thank you so much. I'm going to use that strategy. <laughs> All right. A potential disaster averted this morning when Russian flight controllers called off a spacewalk for two of their cosmonauts after they noticed an unexplained and a significant fluid leak from the Soyuz crew ship that docked at the International Space Station. This is the moment a thick stream of liquid spewed from that spacecraft. This is mission control. As to what may be causing this stream of particles that appears to be coming from uh, the area. You're looking uh, at a close-up view of the area of the Soyuz MS-22 spacecraft uh, that uh, began uh, streaming particles of what could be uh, coolant fluid. It's not known how long repairing this will all take or whether the Russian ship can go home without the repairs. Meantime, the man accused of attacking Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, has had plans, it turns out, to try to attack even more very well-known people. Prosecutors say Hunter Biden, California Governor Gavin Newsom, actor Tom Hanks were all on the suspect's hit list as the court sees video evidence of the violent assault on Paul Pelosi. Let's go straight to our colleague, Nick Watt. He joins us from Los Angeles. This is quite the list, Nick. It is. You know, this uh, suspect, David DePap, apparently told police officers in the moments after the attack, there is evil in Washington originating, according to him, with Hillary Clinton. And you mentioned those other people on his uh, list of potential targets, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, Tom Hanks and Hunter Biden. Now, apparently DePap wanted to kidnap Hunter Biden to, quote, discuss all the corruption. Um, now, of course, it is Six plus weeks now since this man allegedly went into the Pelosi's home, woke Paul Pelosi up at just about two o'clock in the morning, standing over his bed, holding a hammer and zip ties. Of course, Paul Pelosi is now back up and about. He's wearing a hat and a glove to most uh, public events. Remember, he was hit across the head and also suffered injuries to his arm. And of course, this attack playing into Nancy Pelosi's decision to step aside as leader of the Democrats in the House. Guys. So, Nick, you mentioned those charges. He is facing numerous charges, including attempted murder, attempted kidnapping. How do you yeah. expect his team to defend him? Well, it's unclear. I mean, he has on the state charges filed not guilty pleas so far. But, you know, in the moments after the attack, he did apparently confess to this, telling one of the officers, I didn't really want to hurt him, meaning Paul Pelosi. But, you know, this was a suicide mission. Um, and, of course, part of the reason for this hearing yesterday was to give a judge the opportunity to, to decide whether there's enough evidence for this to go ahead to trial. And, of course, 
DePap allegedly hit Paul Pelosi with a hammer while two officers were standing there. Yeah. So the evidence is apparently fairly strong. Guys. Nick Watt, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Caitlin. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was the first woman to hold the gavel. Now she's the first woman to have herself immortalized in the Speaker's lobby. With her official portrait unveiled yesterday, her husband Paul Pelosi was in attendance in Statuary Hall alongside a generation of congressional leaders as Pelosi was honored for her years of service. I'm honored to be the first, but it'll only be a good accomplishment if I'm not the last. The moment even brought former House, former Republican House Speaker John Boehner one time a Pelosi foil to tears. He was among those honoring her and became emotional as he praised his former political rival. How much we admire her. I couldn't tell my girls were Democrats. Boehner noted the times that he and Pelosi worked together in Congress despite being on opposite sides of the aisle. Pelosi, in turn, said she would have been disappointed if he had not actually gotten emotional. Yes, it's perfect from Boehner. I think that's great to see. Caitlin, thank you. New this morning, the final installments of Harry and Meghan's docu-series dropped on Netflix detailing what well, was a bitter split from the rest of the royal family? Harry releasing video of the moment they left for Los Angeles. Good morning. It's 6 a.m. on the 14th of March, and we are on the Freedom flight. <laughs> we are leaving Canada, and we are headed to Los Angeles. Harry also spoke about his relationship with his brother, William, and accused him of screaming and shouting at him for his decision to step away. Let's bring in CNN anchor and royal correspondent Max Foster. Uh, Max, good morning. This is it, right? These are all the episodes. They're, they're out now. And what's the big takeaway? Well, there's a lot more here than there was last time. This is really about their departure and uh, why they felt forced out effectively. So, I mean, it's three hours of it, but if I summarize, it's effectively everything started really well with the wedding and that was really positive high point in their marriage, but it very quickly turned to jealousy. So they were talking about a tour to Australia, which went really well for the couple. Uh, there was jealousy back home. There was jealousy when Meghan started appearing on the front pages. And this really escalated to the point where they felt really unsupported because there was negative press coverage. The palace weren't supporting them, took a massive toll on Meghan's mental health. She says all of this media intrusion triggered her um, miscarriage, also led her to suicidal thoughts. Ultimately, they felt they had to um, relocate from the UK to get away from the tabloids effectively and they went to the family with this proposal to continue in their royal roles but from outside the UK but those stories were leaked those conversations were leaked and it really blew up in the end uh, so Harry went into detail about his meeting with William Charles and the Queen over leaving his royal role what happened there Max well, this was a meeting at the Sandringham Estate, uh, the Queen's Sandringham Estate, um, after Meghan and Harry had put out, issued this public plan for what they intended to do, which was moving to Canada, <laughs> continuing their roles, but being privately funded effectively. Uh, they went to Charles, William and the Queen with this plan, and this is what happened. 
it was terrifying to have my brother um, scream and shout at me and my father say things that just simply weren't true and, and my grandmother, you know, quietly sit there and, and sort of take it all in. Their argument effectively was that you're either in or you're out. Uh, Harry wanted half in, half out. Uh, of course, this is all entirely from the Sussexes' point of view. We've gone to the palace, we've gone to the family. They aren't responding just yet, but there is stuff here to respond to, I think. You think they're, they're going to respond, Max? Yeah, I think they have to. There's some really severe allegations here, mm. and they need to give some sort of response. There's specific mm. allegations as well. Yeah. Max Foster, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, Elon Musk is claiming that he's pro-free speech, but maybe that doesn't apply to his critics or his own private jet trackers. We're going to speak with the creator of the now-suspended Twitter account, at Elon Jet, Jack Sweeney, about that next. Plus, a growing man shortage. Yes, you heard that what? right. It's, it's true, a special CNN report on why so many men, not Don Lemon, are leaving the U.S. workforce. That would be nice, though. I wish. No way! <laughs> More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So Elon Musk is pro-free speech, except when it is speech that he doesn't like. Twitter permanently suspending an account that tracked the location of his private jet, despite Musk himself saying last month that he would leave the account up as part of his commitment to free speech. Jack Sweeney runs that Elon Jet account, and we're going to talk to him in just a minute here. Jack is a college student who used to publicly use publicly available information to build a bot that posted every time Musk's Gulfstream took off and landed at an airport. Well, his account had long been a thorn in Musk's side with more than a half million followers. And only this week, Twitter just happened to reveal new restrictions around sharing details about someone's location. Musk is defending the policy, saying that it is a physical safety violation. The ban comes after Musk reinstated previous Twitter rule breakers, including neo-Nazis. Twitter has also stopped enforcing policies banning COVID misinformation. Now, remember this, that Musk had been on the free speech train since purchasing the site. Just look, he is framing this, his fight for free speech, as a battle for the future of civilization. His words. But Musk has a history of not welcoming certain speech across his businesses. The former SpaceX employees told the New York Times that the company fired workers after they publicly criticized Musk's behavior on social media. A Tesla employee claims that he was fired after posting YouTube reviews of Tesla's autopilot functions. And in a book by Wall Street Journal reporter Tim Higgins, he details reports that Musk created an environment at Tesla where workers who disagreed with him were ousted. When Tesla has laid off employees, it's asked them to sign agreements with non-disparagement clauses. Musk had banned a fan blog from company events after they published a story claiming that Tesla was charging owners for hardware they had already paid for. He has blocked journalists like our very own CNN colleague Alex Marquardt. And on an earnings call in 2018, after Tesla reported a record loss, Musk didn't want to hear any questions from analysts. So where specifically will you be in terms of uh, your capital next. requirement? Next. Next. Boring bonehead questions are not cool. Next. CNN has attempted to reach Twitter for comment, but we haven't heard back. 
But who we are hearing from this morning is the 20-year-old college student that Don was just talking about there who was running the suspended account tracking Elon's jet. Jack Sweeney is also the man behind ElonJet.net, which is still up and running, we should note. Jack, thanks for joining us this morning. And I guess the, what the message is here is that he basically changed the rules on Twitter to justify suspending this account that you were running. Yeah, yeah. And this all comes a week after I had released info uh, that a Twitter employee contacted me that they were like thinking about shadow banning. And so it's really like weird timing, like a weird events that just all add up after it seems like he's just had enough with me. Wait, so, so a Twitter employee reached out to you and said they were shadow banning your account, basically going to minimize and not put it as, in as many feeds. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, last week, and I announced that last Saturday, I believe. And uh, now this has all occurred within the past week after that. What I wonder what it feels like for you. I mean, you're 20, you're in college, and you started this because you really admired Elon Musk. So to have, you know, yeah, the yeah. richest guy in the world, so powerful owner of this company do this to you, I just wonder what that feels like. Uh, I mean, it's completely unbelievable from the first message to him. You know, I just thought at some point it would end and it just keeps going on and on. Um, I thought after, especially after the my commitment to free speech tweet that I'd be fine, but he's changed his view. There's no legal action, right, from Musk that, that you've received at, at this point? Uh, no, no, not yet. No. They have the tweet, but, you know, it's, that's it. You told, you told our Donny O'Sullivan that you would gladly take a job with Elon Musk. That was a while back. Is that still the case? Um, after that tweet, I don't know. Um, that he's saying he's pursuing legal action, I don't, I don't think so. I wonder, um, do you... You use Twitter a lot, right? And your friends and at college use it a lot. I I wonder what you think about it now just as a platform, right? And the hypocrisy that Don just outlined and, you know, saying I'm taking this over to change it and make it better and free speech, free speech, free speech, and then doing things like this. Do you think Twitter is going to be as useful or safe going forward? I mean, just like... I, th- I think he, whoever the owner is, it doesn't matter. They can ban what they don't like. I mean, not just me. They're banning other flight tracking people um, who are mentioning his plane's tail number. I've seen within after me and all that. Jack, can I, can I ask you, on the other side of this, though, is Elon is arguing there's safety concerns. He's talked about his children. He says that that's mm-hmm. what's driving this, not just because he doesn't want people mm-hmm. to know where his jet is landing. Is there any merit to that, you think? Uh, yeah, there, there might be some. But, um, you know, I'm tracking his plane, not him. And especially with the incident uh, that he's reporting, that's with his car and not the plane that I'm tracking. And um, the last tweet that I put out was more than 24 hours before that event. So that was that's quite a lot of time. And to say that that's even connected is a, a big time difference between those two events. Jack Sweeney, thanks so much for joining us this morning, and uh, we'll be watching elonjet.com instead in the future. Thanks, Jack.
You guys on Twitter? You're, you're on Twitter more. Is than, Caitlin uh, Collins on Twitch like a bazillion followers? I I, I I've, noticed, <laughs> I've noticed that since I've been on, like I, since like when I go on now, since he's taken over, and I, I go on rarely. Yeah, you know, I, I know. Think you are as well. Mm, yeah, not so uh, much. I, there's so many ads, and I just like flip through. I don't even look at the ads. It's just like it's they so, got to make like, money. Clutter. Have you noticed more ads on Twitter now? I haven't, but when it comes to this account, I do follow it, and yeah. it's interesting as a reporting tool. I mean, I think Twitter is a good tool for reporting. It's, it is. It's got a lot of flaws, yeah. obviously, but. With this, you know, there are moments where it would say that he had landed in Florida. You know, we'd ask, does that mean he's meeting with former President Trump? Who is he meeting with? Things like that that people would pay attention to. <coughs> really useful. And he's a public figure. <coughs> I've seen that account, that, his, that, you know, the tracker account. I didn't really think anything of it. I mean, he is a public figure and... And also, you can track other yeah. private jets. It's not like it's just Elon Musk. It's not Never. like it's just Elon Musk. There's Moss. other accounts where you can track the tail number of someone that owns, it belongs to someone really wealthy. And <laughs> it's actually interesting to see where they're going, what's happening, and can indicate vice president. Sometimes if you see someone who's getting on a plane, you could say if they're close to someone who's a vice presidential candidate that's being vetted. Things like that. People actually do use it to, to put together reporting. Do you see how much she loves Twitter? Yeah, I see that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> She's great on it. Everyone follow Caitlin Collins. Okay. <laughs> All right, up next, we're going to talk about the male exodus from the workforce and the influx of women. We'll find out what is behind that shift. Plus, some new CNN polls about 2024 and how Americans are feeling about a Trump-Biden rematch. Oh, my gosh. That's what the voters are saying. Right? Everyone's like, (laughs) You're literally echoing the voter sentiment. (laughs) No! Jeez. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Here's what's coming up in the hour ahead. We're following news out of Louisiana where a tornado ripped through the state. It left three dead, multiple injured. We'll show you what happened on the ground as the sun is coming up there. Plus, a new report that says maternal and infant death rates are higher in states that ban or restrict abortion. What the numbers show. And no longer Man of Steel, what actor Henry Cavill revealed to his fans and what's behind his decision. Hmm. Well, there seems to be something missing from the American workforce. We're not talking about Henry Cavill, right? That is, well, sort of, right? Men, men are missing from the American workforce. New government data shows more men are out, more women are in, many of them working in fields traditionally dominated by guys. So what's behind all of this? Vanessa Yurkevich, what's up? Why are the ladies taking over and the men backing out? Is this a good thing? Yeah, it's a good thing. And there's some bad to it. But overall, during the pandemic, you know, we lost so many jobs. But what happened is both men and women have gained all of the jobs back that they lost during the pandemic. However, we are seeing something very interesting happening with middle aged men and women, fewer men in the labor market, more women. So what's behind this trend? We set out to find out. Good morning, Winston. Let's start the day. It's a typical day in the Schnitzler household. 17-month-old Winston is up, and parents David and Allison are getting ready for work. Winston is fed, there's some play, and then the morning goodbyes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. They're off to work. Have a good day. Allison, a family physician, and David, an insurance underwriter. Now, an at-home dad. Caring for Winston, tending to the house, um playing with him, all of that comes first. (laughs) Last year, the Schnitzlers made a significant life change. We made that decision uh, to to have me stay home. David quit his job to take care of Winston full-time so Allison could continue her career. We're happy with the roles that we're in. It's phenomenal. 
And in recent months, more men ages 30 to 44 have been dropping out of the workforce, according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The labor force participation rate for men in that age group is lower than it was pre-pandemic. I don't think it's a secret that many of us rethought our whole work-life balance. What were we doing? Who's raising the kids? How how do we want our family to work? That's a question that a lot of families have been asking themselves. And more women in recent months, ages 30 to 44, are participating in the labor force and at a higher rate than pre-pandemic, according to Labor Department data. And they're moving into more male-dominated industries. The fears of a she-session turned out largely to be unfounded. The women are returning to the labor market. It's becoming increasingly common to see women, for example, having project management roles or generally management positions within construction. Women like Ava Sedohat. I knew I wanted to work in construction management. Sedohat joined the construction industry two years ago as a project engineer. Today, women make up just 14 percent of the construction industry, but it's the highest on record. I think it was definitely intimidating. My only knowledge of the construction industry was that it was pretty heavy uh, and male-dominated. But the more that I started working in the industry and the more people I came into contact with, I think I realized pretty quickly on that there's a place for everyone in construction. Do you see the construction industry as where you want to build your career? Definitely. Early next year, the Schnitzlers will welcome baby number two, another boy. But that doesn't mean David is closing the door on rejoining the workforce one day. I won't say that I'm out of the workforce 100 percent, you know, retired, what what have you. Um, But for the time being, we want to give our second infant son the, the same thing that we gave to our first, and that is a parent who's able to give them 100%. Now, David's reason reason for leaving the labor force is because he wanted to stay home with his son and and take care of him. But that is actually a small percentage of men and why they're leaving the labor force. Economists say that a lot of it has to do with some men are out on disability. There's mental health reasons, incarceration. But just as we've seen in this piece, women stepping into more male-dominated industries, women are leaving female-dominated industries like teaching and nursing. So we actually need more men to step into those roles. The pandemic has changed the way we work, but it's also changed what people are willing to do for work. It's such an interesting time coming out of the pandemic in the labor market right now. I think that's good. I think it's a lesson, barring the the mental health issues and all that, right? But I think it's good because it's it's a reset, right? These Roles that traditionally you thought were male, female. It shouldn't have been that way, but that's sort of, that's what it was. It is what it is. Um, there should be more male teachers. Remember, there's a shortage yes. of, of male teachers. Uh, I think it'll help with the pay gap, with pay equity. Hopefully. Right? Women going into roles or, and switching. I think that it'll help with that. But also, Poppy, as you know, I, said, I told you COVID had a lot to do with it. But um, you get to a certain point in life where you say, eh, it's not about the job. You want to be with your family. And if I, at this point, where I'm, you know, about to get married, if I had kids, I would step back. Yeah. Yeah, I would step back. And and I told him he was saying this in your piece. And I said, just you wait till you have kids because it's it's more fulfilling, but harder in certain ways, but harder to be at home. I have the most respect for what I think is the most underappreciated job in America, which is to be a stay at home Parent, especially when they're tiny, you like your sister has raised twins. It's very, very hard, but um, but it is it is 
everything. <laughs> and so, David said they both go to work. She goes to her job being a family yes, physician, and he goes to work to take care of women. And there are studies that show um, that men that, that are very involved in their children, which is why paternity leave is so important, from the beginning, changing diapers, doing the same things that mothers often, it falls on them, are more connected to their child through their whole life. Yeah. Through the whole life. I need to be able to afford the, someone to help me change the diapers. So. <laughs> You're fine, <laughs> and you should change your own diapers. You I don't do ever it. want to hear that again. You can do it. It's so nuts. You got this. Cleaning up little doggy accidents, that's enough. <laughs> Changing diapers, I don't know about that. Different ball game, but you can do yeah, it. Yeah, there's a little vacuum that does the other thing, not but not that changing bad. Vanessa's diapers. like, okay, I'm leaving. <laughs> All right. She's like getting out of here. She's literally getting out of her door. Thanks, Breaking Vanessa. things up, I leave. <laughs> Thank you. It's good talk. Okay. I enjoyed that. Uh, it was good. Okay, up next, switching gears here, but staying on health and women, a sobering new study on the number of mothers and newborn babies that are dying during pregnancy, why this data shows it's higher in certain states. Also this. Well, all I can say is, that's, that's sort of my Asian version of his. Uh... An apology from the chancellor of Purdue University Northwest after his racist impression you saw there on stage. Those were live pictures out of Jacksonville this morning. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. We want to tell you about this new report, and what it finds is that states that ban or restrict abortions also have a higher rate of mothers and newborn babies dying during pregnancy, at birth, or postpartum. Why is this happening in these states? Our CNN medical correspondent, Dr. Taryn Arula, is here. Um, and I should just note this data is all 2020 and before. Correct. So this doesn't include Roe versus Wade being overturned. We can get into that in a moment. But what does this tell us? Yeah, so this is not looking at the effect of the abortion bans specifically. That's going to take us years to figure out. But what they did was say, let's look at the states that have restrictions and bans. Let's backtrack and look from 2020 and before to see what health care for women maternal health care and outcomes and babies looked like? Where were the weaknesses and how might these bans exacerbate that? So essentially, they took data from the CDC and the March of Dimes, and they compared those 26 states with the restrictions and bans to those that did not have them. And they found that, in fact, there were more maternity care deserts in the states that have restrictions and bans, so places where you don't have access to providers or even hospital or birthing mm -hmm. services. There were less OBGYNs and certified mid midwives, so less providers. More women were giving birth who were younger, under the age of 30. More were giving birth in rural areas. And more were giving birth without prenatal care or with late prenatal care. So obviously, all of this impacts what is going to happen to the mom, to the baby after. But the landscape pre did not look good. And the landscape before didn't look good. I guess the question is, is after it's not going to look much better. You know, I'm from Alabama. I'm very proud to be from Alabama. But that's a state where you can't get an abortion right now. And to see what the numbers for that state individually are, as many other states in the South, including Louisiana, Mississippi, that's the question here. I think if they restrict this care, this access, then shouldn't the care at least be improved? 
Yes, I think that's the question. And and really what we're looking at is maternal outcomes and infant outcomes. And those percentages are not great again. And that's what they looked at in this study. And they found that, in fact, again, in those states with restrictions and bans, looking backwards in 2020, there was a 62% higher maternal mortality rate at that time. Between 2018 and 2020, if you looked at just women of reproductive age, 15 to 44, for all cause mortality, it was 34% higher. And the maternal mortality increase, the rate of increase was two times as much over those years. And let's not stop at the mom. Let's talk about what happened to the babies. Again, infant mortality from 2018 to 2020, higher for that whole first year across all races and ethnicities. Um, And in 2019, in fact, 15% higher mortality for babies in that first week in those states that restricted. So this is not a, a pretty picture, at least, you know, where we started from before. That makes what's happening now with abortion all the more important to follow it and the studies that come after 2020. It's going to be interesting to see. Thank you, doctor. I really appreciate that. Still ahead, the loss of Stephen Twitch Boss. Okay, Uh, he is it. It has opened, excuse me, opened up the conversation about mental health in America and pain that hides in plain sight. We're going to talk about that. So the chancellor of Purdue University Northwest is apologizing for a racist remark he made during a commencement ceremony. Well, all I can say is, that's that's sort of my Asian version of his. uh... Yeah, it was awkward. Well, Chancellor Thomas Kean called the remarks offensive and insensitive and wrote in a statement, I am truly sorry for my unplanned, off-the-cuff response to another speaker. I assure you I did not intend to be hurtful, and my comments do not reflect my personal or our institutional values. Well, Keon says that he is directing an interdisciplinary team to address important issues to the Asian American Pacific Islander community at the university. Catastrophic damage in Louisiana. Tornadoes ripping through that state overnight, killing at least three people. We'll take you there. Also this. The French are heading to the World Cup final. Formidable French. We are live in Qatar. That's ahead. It's our favorite thing. <laughs> Marty's in a like busted on this show, and Don always does it. That is Telemundo broadcaster, Argentine American Andres Cantor, letting the world know that Argentina had scored their third goal against Croatia on Tuesday to book its spot in the World Cup final. Argentina led by the legendary Lionel Messi in what will likely be his final game in an Argentina jersey, will face France, led by the rising star, 23-year-old Kylian Mbappe. Joining us now, Telemundo. Deportes, Chief World Cup commentator Andres Cantor. They tell me we only have two minutes for this, you know, segment. So I, I was thinking you could just say goal for two minutes, <laughs> but I will not make you do this. Congratulations. <laughs> what did it mean to you? How excited are you for Sunday? I'm very excited to tell you the truth because Argentina made it to the final, but because it's going to be epic one way or the other. Will Leo Messi lift the World Cup trophy in his fifth try? in his last dance, or will France 
win this World Cup again like they did four years ago. No matter what happens, history will be made Sunday. Wow. Wow. So uh, are you saving your voice? I can't believe you're, you're speaking with us. Are you saving your voice for the goal? I, <laughs> I am saving my voice for the last goal of the final. Hopefully there won't be many, or maybe there will be many. But usually in a World Cup final, there's not that many goals. But believe me, I'm saving my voice and trying to rest from here until Sunday as much as I can. It ain't easy, but here I am. Can I ask you something real quick, though? How, is there like, a, have you recorded it or timed it, excuse me, for the longest that you've actually said it? <laughs> never, 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 because there are so many emotions going into each game, so I have no idea. You know, it depends how much air I have in my lungs. It depends, the, the, you know, the, how the play progressed. I never timed it uh, ever in my life. Can we, you know, I love what someone said that this will always be Morocco's World Cup, you know, even though they were ousted, just the way that they've played this whole time. But when it comes to Sunday, you know, mm-hmm. the French are formidable. And I wonder what you, what your predictions are about what's going to happen. It's a World Cup final. Uh, if Argentina wants to be the world champs, they're going to have to defeat the world champions. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the beauty of this epic dream final for all to watch on Telemundo streaming on Peacock on Sunday. Yeah. All right. Andres Cantor, as, my, uh, as Anna Navarro always tells me, Andres. Andres Cantor, thank you. We love having you. Best of luck, Talk okay? Talk to you after Sunday. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It was already clear to the media that the palace wasn't going to protect her. Once that happens, the floodgates open. And I realized that I wasn't just being thrown to the wolves, I was being fed to the wolves. The music and everything. What a saga. Good morning, everyone. That, by the way, brand new clip from the controversial Harry and Meghan docuseries, The Duke and Duchess of Sussex, detailing their split from the royal family. We're going to have more from London straight ahead. Have you guys watched it yet? Not a Not second. <laughs> when I've seen it? what we've covered here on the show with Max. Yeah. 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 But first, got to get to tell you about what's happening in the news. Nearly 50 tornadoes tearing across the south. At least three people are dead. And there is catastrophic destruction. We'll get you there. New this morning, a warning from the White House about a winter surge of COVID, flu, and respiratory viruses, how they are preparing. Also, a new CNN poll spells trouble for Trump. It seems that Americans don't have a ton of appetite for his latest White House run or a rematch between Trump and Biden. Yeah, can you blame him? But first, we need to get to this. We get a look at a tornado damaged Louisiana to show you this morning at least three people are dead. Multiple people are hurt after a dangerous storm system moved through the state. Nearly 50 tornadoes have been reported across the South over the last 48 hours, 16 of them in Louisiana. And at this hour, more than 10,000 people in Louisiana are without power. Across the U.S., 130,000 people are in the dark. And we find CNN's Nick Valencia in Louisiana right now. I'm not sure if they're in the dark exactly where he is. He's in Gretna, Louisiana. Good morning to you. What's it like on the ground? What's going on, Nick? 
Yeah, good morning, Don. It is a very eerie scene here in Gretna, Louisiana. And even though many of the buildings around here are without power, you could hear a faint sound of a fire alarm going off. And I want to show you what's left of this church here in this community that took a direct hit from that tornado. This used to be a church, and you could see that this tornado came through, busting pipes, water pouring out of this building, portions of the roof ripped off. You know, the damage here in this community was extensive. We went into the neighborhoods yesterday to speak to residents. And despite this extensive damage, we're told by the authorities here locally that there was no loss of life. But many of these residents were just really caught off guard uh, by the outbreak of these tornadoes, which is a really rare event for this time of year. One of the residents I spoke to said that the tornado lasted about 10 to 15 seconds. By the time she realized that she had to go to her basement to take cover, she said the storm had basically passed. Another resident I spoke to said that her week and a half old brother was asleep in a bassinet and the force of that tornado nearly sucked him away. Uh, so a lot of harrowing stories, certainly traumatizing stories for these residents here. Uh, we understand that the National Weather Service will be taking uh, a cruise throughout this area, canvassing it, surveying the damage. And we also expect Louisiana's governor, John Bell Edwards, to host a press conference later. And as I mentioned, there's no loss of life in this community, but across the state, at least three people have been killed. And there are many injuries here. As the sun comes up, we'll have a better understanding of the extent of this damage. All right, John. Nick Valencia in Gretna, Louisiana. Thank you. New this morning, the White House is warning Americans COVID-19 is not gone. Also, preparation is key ahead of this winter and a potential increase in cases. Let's go straight to MJ Lee. She is live at the White House. MJ, you have great reporting after talking to Dr. Ashish Jha at the White House about their thinking, how they're preparing for a possible winter COVID surge. I'll tell you, we're feeling that here in New York for sure. Definitely. You know, as we enter the holiday season of family gatherings and dinners and parties, the White House is offering this warning. COVID is not over and you need to protect yourself. The White House, to that end, is launching this new campaign, uh, urging people across the country to really do all the things that we are all so familiar with already. Uh, get vaccinated, get boosted, get tested. And to that end, they are launching and restarting the at-home free COVID testing program. You are now allowed four free tests per household and offering up new support for uh, nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. And when I was talking to Dr. Ja last night, he said, look, COVID cases have clearly been on the rise in recent weeks. And the reason that the stakes are so much higher right now, too, is because of this so-called triple threat of COVID, the flu and RSV. Uh, he did say, though, however, that the RSV situation does seem to have peaked, uh, which is just really good news, especially if you have gotten it or you're your children have gotten it. It's really rough. And also, I, I think we all know at this point what to do if you get COVID. Isolation time, masking, go to CDC website. But I wonder, you know, these right. viruses that are seem much stronger this year because of masking before, like RSV, like the flu. Did Dr. Jaw say anything about how to deal with that this holiday season? <laughs> He did. You know, I'm sure you've experienced this. Yes. Uh, we know basically what to do when you get COVID at this point. As you said, you isolate. You know you shouldn't go to work. Uh, but when you get the cold or something else where you're just feeling a little iffy, I think there's still the temptation to still try to go to work or make that family Thanksgiving dinner. And what Dr. Ja said, and I think this is the advice that would come from any doctor, is if you're not feeling well, you just have to stay home. Uh, he was explaining, too, that, you know, the reason there are these specific 
specific guidelines from the CDC for COVID is because you can spread it when you are asymptomatic, whereas he said with the RSV and the flu, you largely are spreading it when you are showing symptoms. So uh, again, the basic rule of thumb going into this holiday season is if you don't feel well, stay at home, stay away from other people, even if it doesn't, uh, it's not what you want to do to skip that holiday family dinner. Yeah, but it's a, it saves everyone else. So MJ Lee, thank yep. you. Appreciate it. All right. This morning, Democrats still waiting on a formal announcement from President Biden about whether or not he's going to run for reelection. But it now appears that one of the most influential people in his life is actually all in. CNN has now learned that First Lady Jill Biden is supportive of her husband running for another term. That's notable, given she is likely one of the most decisive voices in his orbit. CNN's Kate Bennett reports that despite once being skeptical of another campaign, Jill Biden is now encouraged by the results of the midterm elections and she's ready to go. But look at this new CNN poll. When asked if Biden should be the party's nominee in 2024, 40% of Democratic voters said yes. That's not as strong as where Biden was at the beginning of the year, but it is a little bit stronger than where he was over the summer at just 25%. His potential opponent, former President Trump, is not faring as well with his party. He's actually seeing the reverse of that trend because among Republicans and those who lean to the right, only 38% want Trump to be their nominee. Even more striking when those same voters were asked who should be the nominee, who's the next person. The clear leader and clear favorite was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. 53% say they prefer anyone but Trump. So joining us now to talk about this is Maggie Haberman, CNN's political analyst and, of course, from The New York Times. I, I feel like you can kind of hear the screams from Mar-a-Lago from here <laughs> over those numbers when it comes to Going DeSantis. Like this, yes. Um, <laughs> I don't think any of this is making Donald Trump happy. And this is, you know, the CNN poll looks like what we've seen with other polls. This is clearly a trend. Um, Donald Trump's calling card is strength and being seen as strong within his party. And when that starts to erode, it's very hard for him to keep other people at bay. Now, he's the only person who's running right now. You wouldn't know that, Caitlin, because he's done no events. I don't I can't really remember the last time I saw somebody announce for president and do not literally nothing. Um, I'm told it's going to change next month, but we'll see what happens. Um, but this is obviously not where Trump wanted to be. Yeah. He put out a survey the other day, I should note. You know, I get all the reporters who cover Trump get, like, the blast emails. He put out a survey asking people where he should hold his first rally since announcing. Trump did. Missed that one. Okay. <laughs> so clearly he hasn't picked a location yet. But it's been a month now to the day, I think. The rallies are expensive. I don't know how much money he's raising. That's something I think that everybody needs to be keeping an eye on. The rallies cost a lot of money. If you start seeing Donald Trump doing events that are not a rally, uh, that is telling about the state of his campaign in a different way. So we'll see what happens. But the the announcement, I mean, it was lackluster. The energy was low. As you said, he's not really doing anything. He keeps teasing stuff. But, I mean, it's honestly, I feel like kind of who cares? Out of sight, out of mind. It's a little... One... There was a column this week by Josh Green at Bloomberg that I thought was dead on, which was that Elon Musk, of all people, is actually really hurting Donald Trump's campaign because he's made himself into the main character on Twitter, both Mm -hmm. as the villain and as the MAGA, you know, aligner. And if you have somebody doing Trumpian things on Twitter, why do you need Trump? Because we're so it's true. We're so early in a campaign at this point that, you know, if you don't have it's not like we're going to see, you know, a lot of candidates jousting. This is Trump got in earlier than I can remember anyone doing. Can we talk? about this CNN polling that I thought was so interesting because it's not just that people don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. It's that they don't know who they want. Totally, totally. They, it's And isn't that kind of like worse for the president and former president? Because it's like, not only do we not want you, we don't 
even know who else we want, just not you. Biden is the sitting president, so he is just definitionally in a stronger position. I'm sorry. He just is. And so even though, you know, I know that there are a lot of people in his party who privately will say they don't want him to run until those people start saying that publicly, Biden's in good shape. There's a lot of Republicans saying they don't want Trump. Let me follow up on that, because Biden... the, Biden is winning. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, Biden is winning. Point. And I don't know what the polling is showing, but if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, lower gas prices or prescription drug prices, better than expected midterm for Democrats. Brittany Griner's release from Russia, the Respect for Marriage Act. I mean, Biden is winning. So the polling, I don't know if the polling is off or what it's going to show, you know, when he does decide. I think he's going to run. I mean, if his wife says run, he's going to do it. All signs are that Biden is going to run. I think that, you know, they, the White House is sending out conflicting signals, which is, you know, uh, uh, don't write these stories that he's not running. Uh, and yet here we're going to have all these stories, you know, we're going to tell you that he's debating what he's going to do. And so that's their own issue. But I agree with you that at the moment, all signs are that he is going to run. He certainly has, a, you know, wins at his back in a way that Donald Trump just does not. One thing that was interesting about one of the polls yesterday, the Wall Street Journal poll showed Biden getting beat by DeSantis. Now, I want to caveat that we're two years out and polls two years out don't really tell us a ton, but they Mm -hmm. do tell us a snapshot in time right now. Biden is strong against Trump. Trump is strong against Biden uh, or Trump is, you know, stronger against Biden than I think he would be against anyone else. It reminds me a little of what we saw in 2016, which is that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were the two who could beat each other. And I don't know what this looks like going forward if it's not Trump for Biden. It's just something to think about. Yeah. And that's something the White House is watching because yep. Trump is known. DeSantis, you know, he's gotten a lot of praise. We actually don't know what he, how he would fare. Really on. important to bear in mind. Yeah. That we don't know. We have no clue. And maybe he would do better than we think. Maybe yep. he would do worse than we think. Um, but that is something I think the White House is watching because they don't know DeSantis's weak points in a sense like that. Um, but as you said, we're so far out. And I think some voters are like, OK, let's just wait. The fight that is happening right now is Kevin McCarthy on Capitol yes. Hill, who is literally fighting for his political life. There was a moment yesterday where Manu Raju asked him about this this number, this fight to get to yeah. 218. And this is what he said. Why has it been so hard for you to get 218 votes to become speaker when you have President Trump apparently lobbying on your behalf? You've been meeting with members of the Freedom Caucus, but the votes just aren't there. Why has it been so hard for you? Did you spend any time with my conference? <laughs> but I mean, you know what's amazing to me? Here we are with one of the biggest things going on on the spending. And I can always count on you for the most inappropriate question. But. One it's not inappropriate at all. Up. I mean, this is not yeah, an inappropriate exactly. question. I'm sorry. This is actually a very legitimate question. It was a pretty mild one, and it was asked very politely. This is The real question is why he can't get there. He's going to get asked that question over and over again until he actually does. I- I'm of the opinion he probably will. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what he gives the holdouts. Uh, I don't know if the holdouts just get crushed by the moderates who, who McCarthy is sort of quietly leaning on right now. But this is not going well. And he has a very slim majority uh, among Republicans. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with what Manu asked. And even if he wins, yeah. it's he still has the same caucus that's incredibly fractious. That's right. And it, it's still it's not like it's like a victory and everything's done. It's a victory. And it's like it's just getting started. John Boehner is cackling somewhere. There's no there's no question that people who have gone through this are looking at this like, well, not me. Good for you. Enjoy this. I think that answer shows just how sensitive he is about it. And um, it was the right question. And you're right. He's going to continue to get that. I mean, that was a dumb that was a snarky answer and it wasn't necessary. It was it looked as if he was using Manu as a tool, which, right. you know, I think that we have right seen on. politicians do over and over again. But, you know, we will be we will be in this movie for the next three weeks. 
Thanks, Maggie. Thank you. Always a pleasure. <laughs> so you get like some sort of break in the next three weeks. I appreciate that. Yeah. I hope we all do. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, Maggie. Well, straight ahead, the new revelations from the second part of Harry and the Harry and Meghan docuseries, speaking of drama and getting a break. Uh, the couple detailing their freedom fight out of the UK, a fight between Harry and William. It was terrifying to have my brother um, scream and shout at me and my father say things that just simply weren't true and, and my grandmother, you know, quietly sit there and, and sort of take it all in. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I was going through the manual for our security team at home and on one of the pages that I happened to flip to, it was about online monitoring. And they were like, if you see a tweet like this, please report it to head of security immediately. It just said, Megan just needs to die. Someone needs to kill her. Three more episodes of the Harry and Meghan Netflix series has dropped overnight. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex detailing a miscarriage they endured. Harry also opening up about his relationship with his brother, while Meghan reveals her struggles with suicidal thoughts. I want to bring in now CNN's Max Foster, our royal correspondent. He's joining us at CNN this morning from London. Thank you, Max. What are the big takeaways and what do you expect the response from the royal family will be? Well, it really was an extraordinary insight behind the scenes as to why Meghan and Harry decided to leave. Also, a very unusual insight behind palace walls about how things work there. Uh, effectively, Harry and Meghan accusing the rest of the family of becoming jealous of them, then working against them, briefing against them, to the point where uh, Meghan had suicidal thoughts. So uh, a very compelling story, very much from Harry and Meghan's point of view. Uh, this is where it culminates, really, a showdown of the Queen's Sandringham estate between Harry, William, Charles and the Queen, where Harry outlines his plan to leave the royal family but still to continue, in, to some extent, with a royal role. Who's that? Jeep. And they'll be trying to come up with a blueprint for the way forward. I went in with the same proposal that we'd already, you know, made made publicly. But once I got there, I was given five options. One being all in, no change. Five being all out. I chose option three in the meeting, half in, half out. Have our own jobs, but also work in support of the Queen. But it became very clear very quickly that that goal was not up for discussion or debate. It was terrifying to have my brother um, scream and shout at me and my father say things that just simply weren't true and, and my grandmother, you know, quietly sit there and, and sort of take it all in. I know I said I expected a palace response. They just said they're not going to be giving a response. Instead, the family's going to continue with a long-planned engagement today, Don. All right, Max Foster, our royal correspondent, thank you very much. We'll be checking in with him to see what the response is. Joining me now to discuss, senior contributor Trisha Goddard, royal watcher and host of When Meghan Met Harry, uh, Kristen Meinzer, and CNN international anchor Zane Asher. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Trisha, we're, we're talking about this. Um, so what if they, just what if, okay, yeah. watching, what if they had just said, okay, we're all in and stayed but still 
said their piece and said, I'll, I, I dare you to kick me out, but I'm going to speak my mind about this family as I work. You what would happen? You don't understand Brits. You don't understand Brits. Um, I don't think they could deal with, you know, Megan obviously was, talks about her mental health. I don't think it was an option staying there. And you can't just talk out. You, you, if you are all in, you follow the protocol. You've still got, you know, people managing you, what you can and can't say, who you can and can't see and what have you. So they wouldn't have had that freedom. They wouldn't not be able to have their freedom. They've got the most freedom they're ever going to get in the situation they're in now. Zane, you watched all three episodes from 3 a.m. this morning. <laughs> good for you, because I, our viewers... Do you like some of my coffee? Yeah. <laughs> our viewers definitely haven't had, uh, likely seen them all yet. And this was very emotional for you to watch. It was. I mean, I've got to be honest, I, I actually cried watching this. You know, I just think that after watching this, the prayer should never be, dear God, please let me marry into the British royal family. <laughs> the prayer should be, dear God, please let me survive marrying into the British royal family. To marry into this family and to survive it, to survive it psychologically, to survive it emotionally and spiritually, you have to be made of something else. And I just think that this, Megan talks about this parasitic relationship that exists between her and the British press, it needs to be addressed. I think we need to have a very mature discussion Going down. I just want to play it because I, I want you to talk about it. But yeah, there is a soundbite yeah. where she talks about being fed to the wolves, and then you can finish talking. Yeah, I think yeah, it yeah. sets up what it you're really talking does. about. It was already clear to the media that the palace wasn't going to protect her. Once that happens, the floodgates open. And I realized that I wasn't just being thrown to the wolves, I was being fed to the wolves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny, I was, um, before watching the documentary, I was having this conversation about it with my husband last night about the British tabloid press. And he sort of said to me, you know, he's American, and he's like, oh, well, you know, isn't it just the same as the New York Post? Oh, God, no. It's not. <laughs> you know, I think Americans need to understand there is a big difference between the American tabloids and the British tabloids. Mm -hmm. The British tabloids are venomous. They are a particular strain of just, um, I mean, it, you know. I do just, know, I do know. It's, it's awful. Know. And the thing about the American tabloids is that, you know, they'll hound you and then the next story will come along and they'll be distracted and they'll turn their attention elsewhere. The British tabloids, they will not stop. They will not stop until they destroy you. But it, but it's and that is what Meghan only, Markle has dealt with for but the it's past only, five years. We, we, we have to be fair, it's not all of them. It's some of them and to differing degrees. And if you sue them, and if you sue them successfully, if you lay down and take it, and I think that's... Uh, Harry says that, that, that. Yeah, if you lay down and take whatever they have to say about you and suck it up, and that seems to have been the royal family sort of mantra up until now with other wives, because it is when women come in that they get this sort of treatment. If you lay down, suck it up and deal with it, then hopefully it will go away. Diana didn't do that, and you can see that play out with Harry, and neither have Meghan and Harry done that. And once you fight back, once you say, I'm not going to take it anymore, once you sue them, and if you do it successfully, you are done. They are going to hammer you into the floor. Well, and on that note, Kristen, you know, we did just... Buckingham Palace says they're not going to comment on this. They said that previously. They just said it again. We'll see if they comment, you know, not officially on it. One thing that Harry said in this that stuck out to me was... He compared it to essentially saying the reason they were especially venomous to her is that she's supposed to be the supporting act if you're marrying into the family, but yes. she ended up getting a lot of the limelight. And when I was going over to the Queen's funeral, I read the Palace Papers book, and it said the same thing about Diana, that they were upset exactly. because she wasn't actually a member of the royal family, but she was getting all of the attention.
Exactly. And uh, not coincidentally, also happened during their tour of the South Pacific of Australia. This is what happened to Diana, young bride, suddenly an international celebrity. Same thing happened with Megan. And um, the documentary says very clearly that the British tabloid press had a cooperative relationship with the firm, and the firm would plant stories to overshadow, to sully Megan's name, and also to draw more attention away from their own misdeeds, the own, uh, their own negative stories that were happening mm -hmm. with other members of the senior royals. Other senior royals, if something scandalous was happening with them, oh, now is a good time to plant a story about Megan being horrible. They talk very frankly about that in this documentary series. You, you know, you, it's interesting that, you know, we touch on Princess Diana. Princess Diana came from one of the most aristocratic families England has ever known. I mean, she was a Spencer. Mm. So much so that people would joke that Prince Charles was actually marrying up yes, by yes, marrying Princess yes. Diana. And even she had a hard time fitting in. Oh, but so because, you can imagine... Yeah, because of AIDS, she, the mines, AIDS, these weren't things that royals had done up until that point. She broke a mould in many ways. What we saw in, this, in the first of these documentaries with Harry and Meghan is how Meghan got so involved with the uh, victims of the Grenfell fire mm. disaster, which was awful. It's a really impoverished area. Nobody else actually went there. And she was going there without the press knowing for quite some time. That's another mould broken. Broken. Mm -hmm. and it, you don't do that easily. Trisha Goddard, is it a bigger <laughs> impact what they're doing now or if they had stayed and duked it out, no pun intended, if they, in, inside the royal family? Where, is the, where can they make a bigger change doing this or if they had just stayed and said... I'm going to stay in this and I'm going to... It wasn't sustainable. It wasn't sustainable. Not with our... No. You see, you're, Don, you're thinking... No, I'm asking tabloids. you the question. No, That's with the British yeah. tabloids, once they'd done one lawsuit, they couldn't stay there. But my question is, they so it's a bigger impact now, what they're doing with the Netflix and the he's publicity saying they, they're He's saying that he believes that they've lost some of their influence, right? No, no, I'm, I'm no, wondering. I, I don't you, know. No, no, I, let me tell I'm wondering if they can make more change by what they're doing now, if they get more eyes... Yeah. Or by staying in the royal family. That's well. That's here's just the my thing. Point. Here's the thing. And 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 Harry says that in um, episode four, he actually says, you know, the whole that weird synergy or the weird relationship between the royals and the tabloids. He said someone needs to challenge it. He said to his father at one stage, you know, and he his father just said, uh, Charles King Charles just said, the media is the media. He is the first one really taking it on, and he's doing it for Diana. He's doing mm -hmm. it for himself. Mm -hmm. This is what this whole thing's about. It's about mm. the palace comms team okay. and it is that vicious part of the media. Just, is he doing a, a service? I, I, would I would also add that what they are allowed to say when they are official members of the firm, yes. they're not really, you know, they're not allowed to talk about racism. Yeah. They're not allowed to talk about misogyny. They're not allowed to talk about colonialism, about slavery, about the monarchy's role in slavery. And all of these are things that they can talk about now and that they actually talk about in their documentary. These are things the firm is not going to go on the record about. And when Meghan or Harry have done it in the past, they've been told they're out of line. So mm -hmm. I would say they actually have much more freedom now to talk about important things to the world, not just to the palace, and to better serve the causes that the rest of us actually care about. I have to say, the line, the line that got me the most, the line that made me emotional is when she said, look, this is not my country. I have tried so hard to fit in, and it's simply not good enough. Mm -hmm. Every black British person 
understands exactly what she meant by that statement. Because we've all been there. We know what that is. You know, to be bullied, anyone who's been to high school understands that to be bullied in this world, generally, there's two ingredients. There's two things that make a person more vulnerable for bullying. And that is if they are different Mm -hmm. and if they are vulnerable. She's obviously different because she's black. She's vulnerable because nobody had her back. Apart from Doria, nobody, not her family, not her husband's family. And, oh, I mean... I understand the racism here, but in Britain it is deep. Yeah. It's deep. We got to run, though. Thank you you all three so much. It was a really great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. All right, some celebrities here in the United States are facing big lawsuits, though, over their promotion of cryptocurrency. We'll tell you what kind of exposure they may be facing. Plus tips on how to protect your money, your assets. There she is in this uncertain economy. Financial expert guru Susie Orman is here. Hi, Susie. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to CNN This Morning. The conversation about mental health in America after the suicide of Stephen Twitch Boss. We'll talk about that. Plus... Frustration is boiling at the border as officials brace for a surge of migrants in the coming week. And we're going to dive into the so-called Twitter files, what facts, what is fact, and what is fiction. Also this morning, the FTX debacle and downfall has brought a renewed focus on celebrities who've endorsed and touted crypto. Tom Brady, Jimmy Fallon, Madonna, David Ortiz, just some of the rich and famous that are facing lawsuits from investors now, with plaintiffs claiming they did not properly disclose their own involvement with the digital financial institutions. CNN's Christine Romans joins us now. Are they facing real legal exposure? You know, look, the A-list, they're, they're out hunting for lawyers and using the lawyers they already have because sports celebrities uh, and f- sports figures are finding out that those high-profile crypto endorsements that they hyped are bringing costly lawsuits. Disgraced FTX founder and former CEO Sam Bankman-Fried is in jail, accused of carrying out what a prosecutor called one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. Bankman-Fried earned the backing of prominent figures across Hollywood, sports, and politics. I'm getting into crypto. With FTX, you in? Now several celebrities who endorse cryptocurrency are all under fresh legal scrutiny, including seven-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady, supermodel Giselle Bündchen, and four-time NBA champion Steph Curry. They are among some named in a class action lawsuit filed against Bankman-Fried last month after his company suffered a liquidity crisis, collapsed, and filed for bankruptcy. At least a million people can't access their funds. He is denying defrauding customers. The lawsuit alleges they did not properly disclose the scope and amount of compensation they personally received in exchange for the promotion of FTX. One of the plaintiffs in the proposed class action suit, Michael Leviriados, says, as a New England Patriots fan my entire life, you can imagine the influence that Tom Brady would have, claiming he moved nearly all his money from another crypto exchange to FTX. Adam Moskowitz, the lawyer representing the plaintiffs, told The Washington Post, you have very rich people we all love telling us that they checked this out and it was okay. Why shouldn't they be held responsible? This is just the tip of the iceberg for the crypto fallout. Another lawsuit was filed earlier this month by cryptocurrency investors against the NFT series Board Ape Yacht Club. We're part of the same, we're part of the same oh, community. We're yes. both apes. I love it. In the complaint, 37 defendants are named, including Paris Hilton, Jimmy Fallon, Justin Bieber, Madonna, Serena Williams, and again, Steph Curry. 
The lawsuit accuses the creators of enlisting A-listers to mislead their followers into buying bad investments at inflated prices. Actor Ben McKenzie testified before the Senate Banking Committee Wednesday, describing crypto as a bill of goods sold to tens of millions of Americans. They have been lied to in ways both big and small by a once seemingly mighty crypto industry whose entire existence, in fact, depends on misinformation, hype, and yes, fraud. So none of the celebrities named in these lawsuits responded to CNN's request for comment, you guys. Another crypto lawsuit against Ethereum Max was dismissed recently after the judge said that uh, it wasn't clear the investors who sued actually saw the promotions. Kim Kardashian and Floyd Mayweather Jr. were named in that one. Kardashian, by the way, paid more than a million dollars in October to settle with the SEC over failing to disclose that she was paid to promote a crypto token on Instagram. She was paid $250,000 to promote a token on Instagram, uh, something that was not disclosed. She settled quickly with the SEC over that. Yeah. Yeah. Big questions for all of these celebrities. A lot more fallout, I'm sure. Thank you. All right. The Federal Reserve raised rates again by half a point yesterday. This follows months of much higher increases to the Fed, to the Fed's fight on inflation. But higher interest rates from the Fed means higher interest rates for you on loans, on credit cards and a lot more. Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, warned there is a long way to go until we see normal inflation. It's good to see progress, but let's just understand we have a long ways to go to get back to price stability. Meantime, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, is cheering the state of the economy in a new Wall Street Journal op-ed this morning. She calls the U.S. economy, quote, resilient. She notes the labor market is strong, and she says household balance sheets are healthy, consumer spending is robust, and credit card delinquencies are low. So we're so happy to bring in now financial expert Susie Orman, the host of the popular podcast Women and Money, and everyone's smart enough to listen the woman who never ages, by the way, that's what I said to her in the commercial break. It is great to have you. I should also note you are the co-founder of SecureSave.com, which creates employer-sponsored emergency savings accounts, which a lot of people need. Thank you. Thank you. And who's right? Who's right? Oh, well, listen, it's, it's, you can have all these people on television saying everything's great, but just look truthfully at your next door neighbor, at the people on the streets, the people that I talk to, Poppy, that, that call in or that write in to the podcast. They don't have the money to pay their bills. Many of them are living paychecks to paychecks. They can't afford their rent. Good luck if they're ever going to be able to afford a house at these prices and the cost of food. So I have. I just think we're in far greater trouble than ever. Everybody wants us to believe that we're in. You do. So let's listen to this, uh, Suze. The, the um, CEO of United Airlines, Scott Kirby, was on with us a few days ago. Here's what he said. Yeah. If I didn't watch business shows or, or read the Wall Street Journal, the word recession wouldn't be in my vocabulary because we just don't see it in our data. But you see it from normal folks? Yeah, of course you don't see it in your data because you're also not seeing where are the people who are getting those tickets to fly on your airlines? Where does that money come from? Now, maybe the people aren't delinquent yet on their credit cards, but they are paying this on their credit cards. Most people in the United States don't have an emergency savings account of more than you know a few bucks, if anything. Do you know most people can't even afford $400 for an emergency? So, so there are people who are absolutely flying, who are going out to eat, who are going to hotels. But in my opinion, they're putting that on their 
credit cards. And they're doing it because of why they had so much in savings during the pandemic, because we subsidized them in every possible way. They didn't have to pay their mortgages. They didn't have to pay their student loans. They didn't have to do anything. And yet they were getting all of this money. Now savings have gone from all-time highs to really they're almost all gone. And so you're going to see eventually again. They're not. Of credit card debt. Yeah, go on. I was just, the delinquencies, credit card delinquencies, are. it sounds like what you're are, are lower. It sounds like what you're saying is we're on the precipice maybe. Right. Because Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan was warning about this. What happens in a year or so when all when all those that excess savings is gone? Is that what you're worried about? Yeah, but I'm worried about that. I'm worried about that. Many cars now we have almost the highest repossession in cars than we've had in a long time time. We have over 250,000 people who bought homes that are now underwater. We have a million people that only have 10% equity in their homes. So we have a situation where, yeah, people may be going out, people may be doing things, Mm -hmm. but they're still living paycheck to paycheck. And that is a big warning sign in my book. People need to be careful. So let's get to your advice, because folks write you, they come on the podcast, they ask you all of these questions. Quickly, let's take through a few. If someone asks you right now if they should sell their home. I would say if they want to move, they're not going to stay in their home, I would sell it sooner than later. You bet I would. What about a car? If a person's thinking about an optional car purchase, not something urgent? Yeah, if you're going to buy a car and you cannot afford to buy a car outright, really, everybody, don't buy a brand new car. Buy a used car because the second you drive a car off the the lot, it depreciates 20%. So used car prices are finally coming down. But if it's an optional purchase, just wait. Don't do it right now. They're going to get cheaper. Don is sitting over here nodding and giving you a thumbs up because I've never bought a new car. I've never bought a new car. I have a, I have a 2010 Toyota. I've always bought a used car. I totally agree with you. Quickly before you go, though, I think yesterday in the announcement from um, the Fed chair and the rate announcement that it sort of is getting glossed over that the Fed did say unemployment, they think, will tick up to 4.6 percent. That would mean a million more jobs lost in, in like a year. Yeah, and, that's a lot of pain. And that's what that's a lot of pain. So people, are you going to be one of the ones that they're going to have to lay off? I mean, I just think really very shortly, it's so crazy that your goal is to lay people off. You want unemployment to go up. Think about that. If you're one of the people that are going to be laid off, you don't have a savings account. You have debt. Just think about that. So everybody, bottom line is save your money. Really put money away. If you can't pay off your credit card in full every single month, you're already in credit card trouble, in my opinion. Wow. Thoughts. Christy Romans is here with us, too, guys. Yeah, in a high interest rate environment, you've got to be paying down that high interest debt. Be so careful. of the, yeah. And, you know, Susie, credit card interest rates are record highs. And, you know, those store credit cards, I know you hate these like I do. These store credit cards, 29% yeah. for these store credit cards. I mean, just it seems to me like it's I a never sign, open them. It's, it's a easy. Sign Don't of do distress, it. A sign Don't of financial it. distress if you're if you're getting all these cards with these high interest rates. 
Yeah, and it's not only that, it's also home equity lines of credit. A lot of people are moving now from once they've maxed out credit cards or whatever. Let's take out a home equity line of credit. We have 70% equity in our homes or whatever it may be. Remember, Fed funds rate go up. Your home equity line of credit is going to skyrocket. Yeah. So everybody, let's come back to earth. If you don't <laughs> have the cash to pay for it, don't buy it. Thank you, um, Susie. We are on earth. Thanks to you. Thank you, Susie. <laughs> Hi to KT, Susie. Be well. Merry Christmas to oh, you. I loved it, Tim. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. Happy Thank holidays, you. Thank everybody. you. You as well. All right. That was Does a 1987 so cool. station wagon count as a Oh, because you get, like, fancy used cars. I'm, like, old Toyota over here. There is new data this morning on when cancer is being detected and diagnosed in the United States. Wyatt left the author of this study shocked. And we're going to remember DJ and dancer Twitch died on by suicide. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, the entertainment world is mourning the loss of the Ellen Show DJ, Stephen Boss, and you may also know him as Twitch. The LA County Medical Examiner confirmed that he died by suicide. Twitch rose to fame on the fourth season of So You Think You Can Dance, where he was a runner-up. He would later go on to DJ for the Ellen DeGeneres Show. In an Instagram post, the former daytime host wrote this, I'm heartbroken. Twitch was pure love and light. He was my family, and I loved him with all my heart. Generous paid tribute to her DJ in one of the final episodes of the series. I love you like crazy. I, I love, sorry. I was not prepared. <clears throat> I love you and also I love the family that we've gained here. And um Something that I'll always remember is that you gave me a place where I can just be myself. Twitch was just 40 years old. Joining us now is Dr. Jody Gold. She's the director of the Gold Center for Mind Health Wellness. Um, thank you for joining us. It, this is really sad, and, but it's, a, it's an opportunity, sadly, to talk about these issues and to get people to understand it more. You just don't know. It's hiding in, in plain sight most of the time. Yeah, that's the truth. The truth is we have a hidden uh, epidemic of mental health and it's hiding in plain sight. And I think that D DJ Twitch's suicide is just a reminder of that because I think his public persona was such a happy, positive persona that maybe we didn't know. But the truth is, is sometimes we just don't ask. So can we talk about that? Like yeah. we don't go to brunch with our friends and I mean, we go deep on things, but how often do we actually say like, are you okay? Um, been but talking but usually this. people don't say I'm okay, but or I'm thinking about suicide. They just don't do that, right? Right, they don't. And we do check in with our friends, but the truth is we don't often ask about suicide. Ah. The truth is, is that one in 10 adults and one in five teenagers think seriously about suicide. Really? Yeah, it's that prevalent. 20% of teens? 20% of teens have thought seriously about suicide. There's a suicide once every 11 minutes. So this is real, the fact that suicide happens, but it doesn't have to happen. And I think that there's been an increased awareness, like the pandemic, and there's a Surgeon General's warning that there's a mental health crisis for kids. And we know that up to a third of kids and adults with depression don't get the treatment they need. 
Um, but what's so striking about this is, is that he seemed like he had everything, right? And the truth is, is that you have to ask. Now, we don't know about his personal life and all of that, but it does bring up the conversation about do we ask enough? Do we do it screen enough? And I feel like one thing that I've noticed is I'm 30. I feel like people my age and younger, they're way more open in talking about their mental health. I think that people and my friends who are don't. older Isn't generations, and they 40. don't talk about it as yeah. much. And I wonder how much that factors into this, like just not talking about it, like yeah. Donna said. That is such a good point. I've noticed that. One of the good things that came out of the pandemic is we started talking more about this. I've noticed with teenagers and young adults, there's a huge discussion on mental health. If you go on TikTok or Instagram, there's just a constant dialogue. And I feel like I've seen the stigma. I treat kids and young adults, and I've seen the stigma decrease immensely. So I do find that kids and young adults are more likely to reach out and to ask their friends and, and, talk, and speak to their friends. I think adults, there's still a huge stigma. There's a lot of shame with saying that you're depressed or that you need help. And while I think we reach out to friends, we don't often ask the right questions. We don't often, it's more than just, are you okay? What, are, what should it's we ask? It's like, have you been thinking about life not being worth living? Are you feeling hopeless? Are you alone? And I realize that's not super fun, doesn't roll off the tongue. But if you're worried about someone, that's the way you get. I mean, you'd be surprised when I ask those questions, how much people will answer, no, I actually need help or I've been thinking about it. And then there's help out there. I mean, I think that's part of the discussion as well, right? There's an increase in screening. You know, we have, we have suicide hotlines that you can call, which is wonderful. We still need more screening and we still, on a more global level, need better treatment. Um, do you know that, like, Every state in this country is a, um, doesn't have enough child psychiatrists and that 70% of our country um, doesn't, has a deficit in mental health providers. It's just the numbers are awful. They're, yeah. But it is an important conversation to have. So thank you for joining us to have that conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And if you or someone that you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, as the doctor said, there is help. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available 24-7 all you have to do is dial 988. You can also talk with someone online at 988lifeline.org. Make sure you check on your loved ones this holiday season especially. We'll be back in a moment. Good morning, everyone. It is a very busy day. It's Thursday, it's December 15th, and welcome to CNN This Morning. A lot of news to get to this morning. I'm going to catch you up on the five things that you need to know CNN This Morning. At least three people are dead after a dangerous storm system tore through Louisiana. Nearly 50 tornadoes reported across the South over the last 48 hours. 16 of them in Louisiana. More than 50,000 people are without power right now. There remains a severe weather threat with possible tornadoes for hundreds of thousands of people in Georgia and Florida this morning. The man accused of attacking Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, apparently had plans to target other very well-known people. Prosecutors say the suspect, David DePap, had a hit list that included Hunter Biden, California Governor Gavin Newsom, and actor Tom Hanks. During the preliminary hearing, In California on Wednesday, the judge ruled there was enough evidence, was enough evidence to proceed to trial. And First Lady Jill Biden all in for 2024. CNN now reporting the First Lady's attitude about her husband running for re-election has changed and shifted over the last few weeks. She is now supporting the idea. The president has not yet announced if he will seek a second term, but a new CNN poll shows that most Democrats Right now, so they prefer someone other than Biden at the top of the ticket. An unexplained fluid leak at the International Space Station cancels a spacewalk for two Russian cosmonauts. 
The leak is being called significant, and you can see the thick stream of frozen coolant particles spewing from the spacecraft that's docked to the ISS. It's not known what caused the leak or how long repairs will take. And the final three episodes of the Harry and Meghan docuseries on Netflix dropped overnight. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex offering many details. Uh, details of miscarriage that they endured. Prince Harry revealing how his brother screamed at him for leaving the family. Meghan also talks about her struggle with suicidal thoughts and says she ultimately realized the royal family was, in her words, quote, feeding her to the wolves. But for this, first this morning, we get to our top story of tornadoes ripping through the south overnight, leaving a trail of destruction, killing at least three people in Louisiana, where this morning more than 10,000 customers across the state still don't have power. CNN's Nick Valencia was in Gretna, Louisiana, showed us the devastation firsthand. This used to be a church, and you could see that this tornado came through, busting pipes, water pouring out of this building, portions of the roof ripped off. You know, the damage here in this community was extensive. Severe storms, unfortunately, are continuing to threaten the southeast today. So joining us now this morning to talk about this is the lieutenant governor of Louisiana, Billy Nungesser. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. You know, we've been paying close attention to this. What is the latest that you have uh, when it comes to the understanding of what the damage looks like statewide? Well, it's widespread. You know, we had tornadoes from north Louisiana down to the South, you were just talking about the one in Gretna that went through three parishes, Jefferson, Orleans, and then crossed the Mississippi River in the St. Bernard. So it's widespread. They're still assessing the damage. Uh, the latest I got last night, there was about 50 people that uh, couldn't go back. Their homes were completely destroyed. We're moving trailers to our state parks to try to house those people close to where they live. I got to ask you about uh, deaths, Lieutenant Governor. Any any confirmed deaths this morning? Yeah, there's three deaths, uh, two up in uh, Caddo Parish and, and one in St. Charles Parish. A young lady and her eight-year-old son were found. I hear blocks from their home. Uh, horrible uh, deaths, you know, in this horrible storm. That's terrible uh, to hear. I wonder about missing people. Are you aware of any missing people? You know, last night they were still looking to identify where people were. They're, they're still going through the neighborhoods and, and going through the rubble. Uh, like I said, it's across many parishes, so it's widespread. And hopefully we'll have some updated information now that the sun's up this morning. We can finish those uh, searches and make sure there's no other deaths or people hurt. Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser, I, we know you're busy this morning, so thanks for joining us for those important updates. Yeah. Thanks, Governor. Well, thank you. Also, in health this morning, cancer survival rates are continuing to improve in the United States. This is according to the American Association for Cancer Research. The number of survivors of cancer in the nation rose by more than a million over the last three years. And that's partly a result of catching and treating cancer early. But there is a new report, and it suggests we still have a long way to go in the quest for early detection. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, is with us again this morning on this. I was stunned to see this number, Sanjay. Good morning. I was as well. I mean, I, I really had no, no idea of, of trying to figure out just how many cancers uh, that are found every year, how many of those are actually found by recommended routine screening tests. And that's the number on the screen, 14.1%. 
That's what they found. When you look at all the cancers that are diagnosed in any given year, this, this information coming from the University of Chicago, look at all those cancers and say, okay, let's, let's sort of look back and say, how exactly were these cancers diagnosed? And again, only 14% or so from routine recommended screenings. Uh, the vast majority for other reasons. People, uh, they develop symptoms. That takes them to the doctor. Or what are called incidental findings. Someone goes in for something totally unrelated. In my world of neurosurgery, someone may come in after a car accident or something. They get a, a, a scan of the brain and they find something Crazy. unrelated to the car accident. That ha happens quite a bit. But that's, that's sort of where things stand right now. Well, Sanjay, that doesn't give me, and I'm sure most people, a lot of confidence yeah. about cancer screening. So then what, is, what does this say about cancer screenings? Yeah, so, so let, let, let me give you a little bit of context here. First of all, when you look at recommended screenings, um, there are only four cancers that actually have routine recommended screenings now. Breast, cervical, colorectal, and lung. And that gives you some idea of, of how, how well they work in terms of actually finding cancers, which, which isn't bad. Breast cancer, 61%, as low as lung cancer, 3%. People are screened for lung cancer if they have a 20-pack year uh, history of smoking, meaning they smoked at least uh, you know, um, a pack a day for 20 years or two packs a day for 10 years. Some of those screening tests are better than others. But I think what, it, what is interesting, there's lots, obviously lots of other cancers out there that don't have recommended screening tests like prostate cancer, for example, but, the, but there are screening tests out there that can be effective. I think there's, there's two messages here. One is that if you look at the data a little bit more closely, you still see that there's a lot of people who simply aren't getting the screening tests. They're, they're just not doing it. So the tests are not going to work, obviously, if people aren't doing them. And we also need better screening tests. So more people need to get screened, and we need to do a better job of getting uh, screening tests out there that are even more effective at picking these cancers up. I don't think the answer should be um, feel discouraging that these don't work or that we should just stop doing it. I think, if anything, just the opposite. We probably got to lean more into these. And Sanjay, how much of this had to do with during COVID, a lot of people didn't get cancer screenings and how much yeah. did that affect this? Yeah, great, great question. You know, so this data that we're, we're showing you is actually from just before the pandemic. Uh, that's the last year that the, this sort of data was made available. So it's quite possible, Caitlin, that those numbers did go down even in terms of people actually going and getting screening tests during the pandemic. Hopefully they go back up again. But I think, you know, again, people see this 14% number today. Um, think of it as a rallying cry as, as opposed to a point of discouragement with regard to screening tests. They can work. They have saved lives, lots of lives. My mom was, uh, found a, a breast cancer on a routine mammogram. Um, I think she's here today because of that. There's a lot of people who have stories like that. So hopefully this isn't something that's going to be discouraging to people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Doctor, thank you. Much Sounds appreciated. Good. The Biden administration bracing for a surge of migrants at the southern border. Coming up, we're going to speak to Hidalgo County Judge Richard Cortez, who has asked President Biden twice to extend an expiring Trump-era policy that helped control the influx at the border. So the Biden administration is warning of a likely influx of migrants at the southern border next week. It's because a Trump-era border policy known as Title 42 is set to expire next Wednesday. 
It allows officials to turn away migrants at the southern border under a public health authority. Local officials in Texas say they're already overwhelmed. Now, one of them is Judge Richard Cortez of Hidalgo County, Texas. Uh, his county shares a border with Mexico and contains a key ice processing center. Cortez has urged President Joe Biden to visit the region to see their challenges firsthand for himself. And Judge Cortez joins me now. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. It's a very important topic. From McAllen, Texas, which I know. Good morning. It's my pleasure. Good morning. Thank you. So let's get into to this, Judge. First, please tell us what you're seeing at your portion of the border right now. What is the situation like on the ground? Well, the situation is pretty much the same. We continue to have a large inflow of, of migrants coming in. Uh, I speak to the Border Patrol often. Uh, they tell me that now with, with having the tool of Title 42, they're managing that, that flow uh, of, of immigrants, but they're very, very concerned that when Title 42 is lifted, that, uh, that the influx will, will be overwhelming and turn a manageable situation to an unmanageable situation. So we're very concerned. And we're looking at pictures now of tent cities, you know, um, across the border in Mexico and people just hanging out there. Uh, and waiting to cross the border. I want to ask you about this, uh, this memo. DHS, DHS is warning that if Title 42 ends, right, next week, it will likely increase migration flows immediately. How is that going to impact your community that is already under stress? Well, it's going to have a huge negative impact. Uh, it, and as you know, uh, this immigrants, we don't know. Some of them may have infectious disease. Some may be criminals. I mean, I mean, we'll get a mixed bag of them. Many of them are, are honest people that want to come here and work, but, but we have a mixed bag of things. And none of them really want to stay here in, in our area. They're all moving north or east or west to other, other municipalities. And it was always a concern to us when, when they come into our airports or our bus stations, you know, to our neighborhoods, uh, when such large numbers, it, it presents a logistic, a logistic problem. And, you know, thank goodness we have some uh, non-governmental agencies that have been assisting with this process, but it puts a burden on not only cities, but, but all our federal agents. And we're going into a holiday season that, that hopefully our, our people that that are entrusted with protecting us will we'll spend some time with the families. But if this Title 42 is lifted, then it's going to be all hands on board, everybody working. Uh, it will really be a nightmare. I think everybody agrees with that. You have been calling on the president to do something. As I said in the introduction to you, you've been saying the president should come down and see the situation for themselves. You pointed out the problems and the issues here. Now, the, the question is solutions. Right. Because you have to figure something out. What do you want the president and his administration to do? What action do you need them to take today? Well, uh, I look at things on an objective basis because many people and many Americans have subjective beliefs of what is happening. But let's look at the data. The data says that America's economy will not sustain itself or grow itself without immigrants. So obviously that's telling America that America needs immigrants. So if that's true and we all want our immigrants to come here legally, then the president and Congress need to pay attention to the laws that we have so that they can have an easier way for immigrants to be able to come here than want to come and work. America has been trying to deal with this border problem with an enforcement-only policy. 
Uh, I've been chairman of the Border Trade Alliance. It's a, it's a tri-national organization dealing with trade issues. We've had this issue since way back in 1986 when President uh, Reagan gave amnesty to, to uh, many illegals that were here. And nothing has changed because the laws haven't changed. We have outdated laws that Congress needs to look into, and our president needs to provide leadership to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. So uh, just again, just to be more specific, because in, in a statement, the Department of Homeland Security said that it has deployed additional agents and resources to the El Paso region. I, I'm wondering if you think that is enough. You mentioned the laws specifically. Well, laws and what? You know, uh, I, 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 I'm smiling because what we have is that we have a leak. We need a plumber to come and stop the leak. And instead, what we're doing is we're sending us more buckets to hold the water. That is not the solution. We have a mixed bag of people coming in, some we want and some we don't want. If you talk to Border Patrol, they'll tell you, uh, Mayor, I used to be Mayor, sorry, Judge, uh, 28 people are coming in between the ports of entry. Two are very bad criminals, and and, and 28% are economic immigrants that simply want to come and work. Can you please tell me which are the two bad ones and which are are the 28 not so bad? We don't know, so we have to go after all of them. So one way to reduce the flow of immigrants that our people have to be pursuing is to give them an easier path to come here, the ones that we do want, and eliminate having the volumes that they're having to deal with. Mm-hmm. With with this amnesty program, what is happening and what will happen here if it's lifted, they're going to have to redeploy people that are in between the ports of entry because they only have so much time to come and administer to those people by law. So that means that they're going to take people out of in between the ports of entry where the danger is, where most of the danger is, and put them here to administer asylum seekers. To me, that's not a plan that works. And that's why I would like the president to come here and see it for himself and provide the leadership that we need to finally, finally quit trying to solve the border problems with an enforcement only policy because that hasn't happened over 35 years. And if somebody thinks that we can solve it with enforcement only and adding capacity, then I've got a bridge in New York that I want to sell them. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, there is an immediate deadline uh, coming up. And so let's see what happens in the coming days. Judge, we appreciate you joining us here on CNN this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Caitlin. In London this morning, Buckingham Palace says they're not going to comment on those new episodes of the Harry and Meghan Netflix series that was released earlier today. In the new clips, they talk about their split from the royal family, including Harry's claim that his brother, Prince William, screamed at him. Max Max Foster has more. And what she said to me was, it's like this fish is like swimming perfectly powerful. It's on the right current. And then one day this little organism comes in. The second installment has landed. Harry and Meghan's Netflix docuseries, Latest Drop, could prove to be a lot more explosive than the last time round. And the entire thing goes, what is that? What is it doing here? It doesn't look like us. It doesn't move like us. We don't like it. Get it off of us. While the piece starts with fond recollections of their wedding, It goes on to accusations that the institution became jealous of the couple during their triumphant tour of Australia in 2018. The issue is when someone who's marrying in, who should be a supporting supporting act, is then stealing the limelight or is doing the job better than the person who was born to do this. That upsets people, it shifts the balance. 
For Meghan, her claims of jealousy, media intrusion, lack of protection from the palace, even leaking of negative stories was too much. The stress of the coverage, she says, triggering a miscarriage and even suicidal thoughts. All of this will stop if I'm not here. And that was the scariest thing about it, is it was such clear thinking. I remember her telling me that, that she had wanted to take her own life. And, um, and that really broke my heart. I was devastated. I, I knew that she was struggling. We were both struggling. But I never thought that it would get to that stage. And the fact that it got to that stage, I felt angry and ashamed. In late 2019, Harry says conversations were leaked between him and his father about Meghan and Harry taking reduced roles and leaving the UK. In early 2020, they issued their own statement laying out their plans, which culminated in a family row at the Queen's Sandringham estate between Harry, William, Charles and the Queen. It was terrifying to have my brother um, scream and shout at me and my father say things that just simply weren't true and, and my grandmother you know, quietly sit there and, and sort of take it all in. A year later, ahead of their bombshell interview with Oprah Winfrey, a story leaked that Meghan had bullied her palace staff. To see this institutional gaslighting that happens is, is extraordinary. Um, and that's why... Everything that's happened to us was always going to happen to us, because if you speak truth to power, that's how they respond. Harry speaking out for his wife, but also his mother. Buckingham Palace and Kensington Palace say they won't be responding to the Netflix series. Instead, senior royals will continue with their planned public engagements. I mean, I was just telling them that I have a lot to watch on vacation next week. Yeah, that was Max episodes. Foster, yeah. by the way, our royal Max, correspondent. Thank yeah, you. I, when we talked earlier, I didn't even think about the mom part because considering what happened with the paparazzi and the media. Diana? His mom. Yes. Oh, yeah. And so this is, I didn't even take that into account. Yeah, there's so many layers to it. Okay, so guys, ahead, we're going to talk about the Twitter files. You've probably heard about this, but we're going to tell you a lot more. They have become a political lightning rod. What is fact? What is fiction? We will tell you on CNN This Morning next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up this hour, the first Avatar movie set the record for highest grossing film of all time. But with box office numbers struggling in this post-COVID world that we're in, is there any chance the sequel can actually live up to that success? Also, rapper Meek Mill sitting down with CNN's Chloe Malas on his effort to reform the criminal justice system. And you might know him from the OC, but the actor Ben McKenzie is spending more of his time these days on the East Coast in Washington, telling Congress that the crypto market is the largest Ponzi scheme in history. He will join us live to talk about that ahead. I cannot wait for that. But let's begin with the so-called Twitter files. Elon Musk has claimed he wants to bring transparency to Twitter and, well not totally what's happening, but cue the birth of the Twitter files. Let me tell you more. Musk selected a handful of journalists unaffiliated with major 
credible news organizations with whom he has shared internal Twitter systems and communications that seem to focus on some of Twitter's most high-profile and sometimes controversial content moderation decisions. These files, which the selected journalists then tweet out, appear to call into question the integrity of the company's former leadership while also riling up Twitter's right-leaning, some of them, right-leaning users. This week, former CEO Jack Dorsey responded to the Twitter files, acknowledging, yes, there were mistakes made, but saying he believes, quote, there was no ill intent or hidden agendas and everyone acted according to the best information we had at the time. Dorsey added later, quote, as for the files, I wish they were released WikiLeaks style with many more eyes and interpretations to consider. There is nothing to hide. He went on to say only a lot to learn from. But Dorsey is not fond of the attacks on his former colleagues. And he says, if you want to blame directed at me and my actions or lack thereof. So let's bring in our friends and colleagues, CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy and CNN correspondent Tony O'Sullivan. Thanks, guys, very much um, for being here. And Oliver, we'll get to your reporting in just a minute on these. I, I would, though, like to begin with, I think, what is maybe the most talked about Twitter file. Uh, what are they called? Is that right? The Twitter file. Is the app. Yeah, Twitter file. Uh, the Hunter Biden laptop. Mm-hmm. And the New York Post story that was squashed um, weeks ahead of the election. What has come out of the Twitter files on that? Well, I think, one, we need to first say that Jack Dorsey admitted that suppressing the New York Post story um, was a mistake. So that he did, uh, I think, last year. So um, the Twitter files, though, they they really showed the, I think, messy content moderation uh, that was happening behind the scenes. And I think we're seeing, um, and it's probably no surprise, but we're seeing that not everyone agrees is on the same page when they're making these complex decisions. I will say on this specific uh, Twitter files drop. I thought what was really noteworthy was that Elon Musk's handpicked reporter, Matt Taibbi, said that there was no evidence of government involvement in trying to suppress uh, this story. And that was a big claim that Elon Musk had made earlier when he was hyping these Twitter files. I think that's very important to mm-hmm, point out here. Mm-hmm. And part of this, I think, also is not just the story, it's the way it's being covered. That is so much of this conversation. And you wrote in your newsletter the other night saying that the reason most news organizations aren't up in arms and it's not leading every hour on CNN this morning is because the releases have largely not contained any revelatory information. You weren't the only one who said that, though. Gerard Baker, who is the conservative former top editor of The Journal, said... They don't tell us anything new. There's not any kind of shocking revelation about censorship or anything like that. Yeah, but it's look, still important to talk about it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're nerds like us and you're really paying attention over the past few years to a lot of this stuff, um, you know, you remember in 2016 and when we learned about the Russian trolls and the influence campaigns and the hacking and everything like that, um, people were up in arms. Uh, people were blaming Silicon Valley. So they all tried to get their act together in 2018, 2019, 2020. Um, whether they did that successfully or not is is up for debate. Uh, But part of that was having these conversations regularly with the FBI, with DHS, with DNI. And, you know, one thing that is a bit frustrating about these files is that it, it presents this as a huge revelation. We never knew that Twitter was talking to the FBI. They were putting out, Silicon Valley were putting out press releases <laughs> about the meetings they were having with them. Um, that being said, I do think, you know, we shouldn't totally dismiss uh, what's in this already. I mean, part of the job we've been doing the past few years is holding these tech companies accountable. And I think, you know, the power they wield is huge. And kicking a former, a then president of the United States off the platform is a very, very big deal. Yeah. yeah. I just, I don't know. I just, I, I kind of don't care. 
I know it sounds awful. I, listen, I care about Twitter when it comes to people who live in, in countries where there's suppressed speech and, and rights and that kind of thing. It's a good news aggregate. It can be used especially for people in this industry. But this whole idea about, you know, people being suppressed and whatever, I mean, you have such of the loudest, craziest voices on Twitter that are not suppressed. When you see, you know, Donald Trump Jr. tweeting a hammer and underwear about someone who is, could have been killed, I just go... Stop and, and like, figure out what's important. Doesn't it matter? I hear you. Yeah, it does matter. Doesn't I mean, matter if we're that not a big, not, powerful company, if they use their. I, I, listen, no one has a right to be on Twitter. Okay, you can be on Twitter or not be on Twitter. It's a private company, mm-hmm. and if you know, they can set the rules that they want to set. I just feel like, especially especially this whole Hunter Biden thing, it's like a Rorschach test for political, mm. like what side, what you believe politically. So for me, it doesn't interest me in that way. But that's me being, I'm selfish enough. It is a private company. Um, and look, the First Amendment does not, you know, private companies are allowed to do what they want. This well, is I part of the whole debate. The, the free speech debate. Yes, this. but I but think... Free speech I, is about government. That's exactly. About, no, yeah. not about 100%. Right. So it doesn't apply right. to Twitter. But I think... Um, you know, I, I think people in Silicon Valley, many of them are libertarians. I think many of us uh, in the media would like to think that the spirit of the First Amendment would apply to this platform because it has such a pivotal role as a town square and it has such a pivotal role in political discourse, whether we like it or not. So I do think that it is quite important there. And remember, by the way, when Trump got kicked off the platform in those days after January 6th, and lots of people were calling for that to happen. People were saying, Twitter, what are you doing here? But at the time, people like Angela Merkel, a spokesperson for her, who was no great fan of, Eli- of, of Trump, said, look, this is actually a bit concerning to see that a platform this powerful can kick off a president of the United States, even if he has outlets elsewhere. Mm. And I think a lot of the Twitter files, I mean, more transparency is great. I think Donnie and I would have loved to receive a cache of files exposing or revealing <laughs> our email address. Oh, I bet you there. would. Yeah, we would. Slide we would. into our DMs, Elon, <laughs> with the files, please. I think the problem here, though, is that Elon Musk is effectively serving as a gatekeeper for this information. He is not giving it to newsrooms. He That's is true. giving it to hand-picked journalists who are then agreeing to the condition, at least one condition, of uh, tweeting out the files instead of posting my news stories. So I, I think that's, that's not the spirit of free speech. No, no it's and, okay. and that's, but even more that's so, sort of an issue here. It's the jet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It all comes back to the private jet, as the old saying goes. <laughs> but with this, the transparency matters and how he makes decisions matters. And now he's changed the rules basically to justify removing an account that was tracking his private jet. Yeah. yeah, and so this is the guy, right? Maybe that's he's, the next Twitter files. He's, I would, right? <laughs> he is a free speech. <laughs> he's a free speech absolutist. He's torn up the rules, uh, saying about COVID misinformation. Uh, he doesn't really seem to buy the idea that d- speech can lead to, you know, speech can lead to possibly dangerous acts in the real world. And yet he turns that all up on its head last night when it comes to his private jet. And he says, well, this is dangerous. And so th- we're going to shut this down. And he actually rewrote Twitter's rules this week. So is allowing <laughs> just... lies and conspiracies. <laughs> yes, but he rewrote Twitter's right. rules to, to, to get that jet account kicked off the platform. Look, I do think that 
if I had a private jet, I mean, I know you have you a private don't? jet, Caitlin. Uh, Many. Yeah. <laughs> Dodie rides on my private jet. I think that's in your rider for CNN this morning. Um, right. you know, I wouldn't like it to be tracked, but I mean, if you're the guy who's, you're all about free speech, then you turn around and do this, yeah. bit hypocritical. Is it, it a, is it a Bombardier Global Express or is it a G? Can I be clear that oh, I'm going to be in a middle? Fact that you, even you know those know. names. Let's be clear he that I'm going to be private jet names. I'm going to be in a middle seat flying home to Alabama next week. I will not be on a private jet. Caitlin and I are commercial and here's Mr. PJ over here. I would, I would love, aspirational. I, yes, I would love to be able would to get on a plane, my own plane, and go see my mom after do, the show every day. You, I, I can't. so prefer commercial. I'm good. I, oh, you do? I prefer Safe? commercial. I hate turbulence. Oh. Safety. I'm I, like Delta. Thank, thank take you. me home. Thank you, Albert. Or American or United. or keep going. They're playing <laughs> us <laughs> off. They're playing us off. Albert Dorsey. Thank you. Tony O'Sullivan, thank you very much. Okay. Uh, this morning's number is $2 billion. We're going to tell you why that's next. That's so true, by the way. He's still super, but Henry Cavill won't be wearing the cape again, confirming on Instagram that he won't return for the iconic role of Superman writing this. This news isn't the easiest, but that's life. The changing of the guard is something that happens. I respect that. My turn to wear the cape has passed. But what Superman stands for never will. It's been a fun ride with you all, onwards and upwards. Co-head of DC Studios, James Gunn, says that the new movie will focus on an early part of the character's life when he was working at the Daily Planet. So now you know, Poppy. Now we know. The long-awaited sequel to James Cameron's smash sci-fi hit Avatar opens tomorrow. It's got a lot of hype to live up to. Here with this morning's number is CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I heard he can't go to the... <laughs> premiere or something because he he had COVID, but he needs to make a like twenty five bazillion dollars, right? To yes. even break a profit on the. <laughs> so film. let's look at this morning's number. This morning's number is two billion because for Avatar to make a profit, profit it has to make two billion dollars. I feel like Doctor Evil putting a pinky up <laughs> to my lips. Okay, can it make the $2 billion? Well, let's talk about the fact that films are currently struggling at the box office in 2022. The total domestic box office in 2022 versus 2009 when Avatar 1 was released, it's down 28%. The biggest 2022 hit so far, Top Gun Maverick, only had a worldwide gross of $1.5 billion. So can we, in fact, get above $2 billion? Let's do a little bit of math together, shall we? Okay. So Avatar 1 made 2.9 billion worldwide gross. If Avatar's gross, if Avatar's 2 gross is down 28% from Avatar 1, guess what? They're going to do it. They're going to do they're it. They're going to do it. I think that they're probably going to do it if the math kind of holds. One last thing for you, Poppy. I just want to talk about the fact that movie struggles at large kind of speak to the larger post-COVID era and changes. People want cheaper options and they want more convenient options. And so to me, the movies are just kind of part of something are changing lives in America at I this point. I love going to the movies. I dream of going to the movies. One day. Maybe you and I can go together one that time. That would be great. We can bring I, Don, yeah. and, and Don and Caitlin along. No, they're going to babysit and we're going to go to the movies. Oh, okay. okay. That works okay. too. Okay. All right, we'll guys. Have to check our schedules. We Thank might you. be busy. <laughs> well, I'll go, but not with Harry. <laughs> Don's going to sit two rows back from Harry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this morning, rapper Meek Mill went to his hometown of Philadelphia to meet with more than 30 children whose lives have essentially been turned upside down 
by the criminal justice system. These kids whose parents are in prison for what are known as technical violations spent the day with Meek and other members of the Philadelphia 76ers and the Eagles as they held a mock draft day to compete, complete with its own combine. Chloe Malas sat down with Meek Mill and Michael Rubin, who is the, co- the co-chairs of the Reform Alliance, who put on the event. And Chloe joins us now. Yeah. It's about these children. Uh, and they're the ones being left behind of what Meek Mill and Michael Rubin say is a broken system when it comes to criminal justice. And I will tell you that, you know, Meek Mill rose to fame um, with the Free Meek Mill movement in 2018 when he got sent to prison and many people felt it was unjust. Take a listen. From 21 to 32 years old, I've been in prison three or four times or house arrest four or five times, could have lost my businesses. Fortunately, I am a celebrity and I was making money for myself, but for the average working person to lose your job, to lose your household over a technical violation, that would drive you back to poverty and put you in a mental state uh, where it'd be hard for you to move forward in America. So probation and parole, I wouldn't say uh, that's the only thing you should focus on in the system because it's very, as many layers to the system. And I don't want to just try to direct uh, the president or the administration to what to do with reform because I, I couldn't give you the answers. But what we are working on, probation and parole, because I was affected by it. And I'm from a community where I see mothers and fathers leave their kids all the time in the house because they may have smoked marijuana or got addicted to a Percocet or went to cross the Philadelphia, New Jersey state line to take their children to football practice. So I would say probation and parole, uh, taking a look at that is a, a, a real thing. The biggest technical violations, people smoked weed. People, um, you know, missed a probation um, appointment. Um, I met somebody else yesterday who lives an hour from where the probation officer is and they have to go twice a week, every week, to see their probation officer. That's four hours to see your probation officer. How do you then go out and um, have a job, take care of your family. It's tough enough to get a job after you come back into the the system. Uh, After you've come out of the system, it's tough enough to get a job. Now you've got all these other things that are working against you. And so the point of probation and parole is how do we help people to rehabilitate themselves? That's what it's here for. And by the way, it's actually not the probation officers and the parole officers, it's the underlying system is broken. So what the Reform Alliance is trying to do is that they are trying to shorten probation and parole terms. And these technical violations can be something as simple as missing a court or probation meeting, failing to pay a fine, and it can land you back in prison. And then these children are home with no mom, no dad, no caregiver. And it really just creates this system where you can never get out of prison. Because and it's it about- hurts the poor over and over and over and over again. I love them. I love this work. And I love that you did I this. talked to him. Uh, in pr- I went to visit him in prison. Meek Mill did. Meek Mill. And then I interviewed him while he was in prison and then reported after he got out. And he promised to do this. Mm. And he is putting his money. And Michael Rubin. I've got to commend Michael. They have passed 16 bills in 10 states. And now they're focused on Meek's hometown of Philadelphia. That is great to both of them. Congratulations. Keep it up. Great reporting, Chloe. Thank Thank you. Up next, the actor Ben McKenzie is going to join us live on what he says is the, quote, largest Ponzi scheme in history. He estimated 40 million other Americans who have invested in cryptocurrency have been sold a bill of goods. They have been lied to.
You might remember him as Ryan Atwood, the rough and tough kid who found himself living among the wealthiest families in Orange County in the 2000s classic, The O.C. No way. Look who's back. You know, you're a little far from eight mile. Look, don't. What are you, like, spokesperson for Geeks of America or something? <laughs> you know what I like about rich kids? <laughs> Nothing. These days, actor Ben McKenzie is taking on a different role as an outspoken critic of cryptocurrency in the volatile market he says is driven completely by speculation. The supposedly multi-trillion dollar industry was nothing more than a massive speculative bubble bound to pop. In my opinion, the cryptocurrency industry represents the largest Ponzi scheme in history. In fact, by the time the dust settles, Crypto may well represent a fraud at least 10 times bigger than Madoff. He testified before the Senate Banking Committee yesterday in its investigation into the collapse of the FTX crypto exchange. Senator John Tester, who actually sits on that committee, was asked afterward by a reporter if Congress could have helped prevent the sudden collapse of FTX. I don't know, because I don't know that anybody fully understands what the hell crypto even is. Joining us now to discuss is the actor and co-author of Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud, Ben McKenzie. Ben, you have been warning about the dangers of this for some time now. You even took a 24-part online course with the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, about this. I wonder if you feel like you've been proven right. Yes. <laughs> I do feel like it. I started warning people in October of last year. Uh, the market peaked in November, so just a month after Jacob Silverman, my colleague, and I wrote our first piece, warning celebrities about the dangers of endorsing these cryptocurrencies and NFTs and whatnot. And since then, the market has lost approximately 70 to 75% of its value. Um, and that's just the value that's on paper. Uh, cryptocurrency is this opaque largely unregulated market. So you can't even trust that the numbers that you see are real, unfortunately. So yeah, I, I, I feel a bit validated, to be honest with you. I wonder how you think you saw this when so many other celebrities have been pushing it, have been hawking it, have been you know encouraging their fans to get involved in this. How did you, how were you so skeptical of it in the first place? So I have a degree in economics and I like to say the book I'm writing is about money and lying. Now, I know about money from my economics degree and from making a little bit of it in uh, 20, 20 years in showbiz, but I know about lying because I do it for a living. Um, as an actor, you're aware of what people are doing and how they're using language. And language is an incredibly important tool that we discount uh, to our peril. When cryptocurrencies call themselves currencies, they are not currencies by any reasonable economic definition. They are instead securities, meaning investments, but they're unregistered, unlicensed securities. We've actually tried this in the 1920s, the roaring 20s, before the great crash of 1929 and the depression, we didn't have securities laws, federal securities laws. And so it's pretty ironic, but 100 years later, we're actually revisiting that era. And unfortunately, what happens is that a lot of people get sucked in and then a lot of people lose money. A lot of people, a lot of regular people. And I think that is at the heart of this. And Something you said when you were testifying that stood out to me was basically that you believe the millions of Americans and people who have been drawn into this have basically just been sold a bill of goods. They have. 
Uh, the lies are both big and small. Uh, the first lies start with language, uh, but they do get bigger. Um, Robert Schiller, the Nobel Prize winning economist, has talked about how economic narratives form. Uh, there are stories that are in response to real things. So the creation of crypto is a response supposedly to the subprime crisis, right? The huge debacle that created a lot of understandable mistrust of our financial institutions has given cryptocurrency the story, a lot of its power. Everyone knows we have big problems in this country, a lot of problems with our regulated financial system. And so crypto says, oh, well, we can fix all that. We can bank the unbanked. We can build generational wealth. We can do this. It's the future of money. It's this, it's this, it's this. Unfortunately, the problem is all of those stories are not true. None of them are true. And you see now, unfortunately, almost when it's too late, the power of those lies. And people wanted to believe in it so much, and I understand why, that they got sucked in. And now, unfortunately, 40 million Americans, um, the vast majority of 40 million Americans have lost money. And what do you think when you hear someone like Senator Tester say, you know, I don't think a lot of people even know what crypto is. When, it, when it's lawmakers and their, their role that they could have been playing here, what do you think they need to do differently? Well, it's really interesting. When you talk to the 80 plus percent of the country that has not bought cryptocurrency, they almost always say the same thing. You know, I've been traveling around the country and the world talking about this with lots of different people from Sam Bankman Fried himself all the way down to, you know, regular investors. But when I talk to people who haven't bought crypto, they always say the same thing or almost always. They say, I don't really understand it, but it seems kind of scammy. And I say, no, 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 you got it. Um, <laughs> It's not really that complicated. A blockchain, this you know, supposedly innovative technology, it's a ledger. It's a way of storing information. It's really not revolutionary. It's been around for 30 years. It goes back to at least 1991 when Stuart Haber and Scott Stornetta, working at Bell Labs, created the first blockchain. But a blockchain is just a, it's just a way of, it's a ledger, right? What they're doing is they're using it to sell you on a story that it's the future of money and amongst other lies. Uh, ironically enough, it's actually the past of money. It's uh, the an attempt at private money, which is something we tried in the 19th century. And it failed. And in part, it failed because of fraud. Um, so all of these things are stories. But as I know as a storyteller, just because it's a story doesn't mean it's a true story. That's a really good point. Your testimony was really impactful. Everyone should watch it. Ben, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That was such a great smart. conversation. Yeah, it was great. I was going to say smart guy, great actor. We I saw mean, all of this before yeah. it happened. Yeah. With what he said about what happened, that we tried this before, is a very important point because we did and there were no regulations. Student of history. Also, he said he's an actor, so he understands how people lie. lie. How people lie. He said, I lie for a living. Great interview, Caitlin. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Hope you enjoyed. CNN Newsroom starts right after a quick break. Have, break. Have a great day. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.